Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, another year completed. As we bid adieu to another year, we reflect on the journey that was 2023. One filled with more episodes, more conversations, and more bizarre news stories than one show could ever really hope to cover. The world is certainly changing into something, <laughs> whether that transformation is for better or worse. Uh, I think we still hold the reins on that one. But this year started on highs and ended on even higher highs. This show returned after some time off due to some medical complications on my end, which I'm officially free and in the clear. But it made me realize the importance of this show and the importance of you that follows along every single episode. This season, I focused on releasing episodes I felt my best and I felt back to, you know, 100% and that paid off. The show grew to brand new heights. You know, for example, the show is now consistently heard in every freaking U.S. state. A personal, a huge personal win for myself. But the year ended on an even brighter note. You don't know this too much yet, listener, but we expanded the Water Cooler Talk team, welcoming two new members you'll get to know throughout the upcoming season and beyond. But it gives me the opportunity to focus more time on, you know, curating new and unique guests, and building bigger and better conversations. And of course, bringing back some, you know, audience favorite guests and uh, experimenting with a few new styles of the show that you have come to love and adore. However, in the shadow of 2022, 2023 continue to show us the interconnectedness of the world. Whether it be discussions about what's happening in Ukraine and in the Israel-Palestine conflict, Trains crashing and exploding in the U.S. Once again, severe weather causing havoc to smaller communities across the world. New COVID strains continuing to just hang out. They're just new and just seem to be coming every time. Storming presidential palaces in Brazil, just to be clear. And of course, whatever Twitter is. But amidst the chaos, 2023 also brought forth positive stories that you know, for some reason, the news seemed to conveniently and often neglect. You know, the hole in our ozone layer continued to shrink. Simone Biles just keeps on freaking dominating every single year. Barbenheimer became a cultural landmark. Progress in malaria vaccines reached unprecedented levels. You know, new animal treatment laws spread globally. India sent and landed a rocket on the moon. And of course, a lot of workers fought and won battles for better pay. And through conflict, the world became more united than ever. I know it sometimes doesn't feel like that, but that's the truth. As stated in previous best of episodes, it's easy to lose sight of the positive contributions that are happening in our world. So on that note... I present to you the best of 2023 episode, the top five news stories from Water Cooler Talk's 2023 guest slate, and including conversations that seem to just, just really hit your sweet spot this year. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 91, titled Best of 2023. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. 
All right, Roger, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Yeah. This is from Consequence Sounds Music, written by Abby Jones, May 2nd, 2023. Ed Sheeran threatens to quit music if found guilty in copyright infringement case. Musician Ed Sheeran is in the midst of a trial for a lawsuit that claims his song Thinking Out Loud rips off Marvin Gaye's classic, Let's Get It On. Darling, I will be loving you. His attorneys have spent the past few months unsuccessfully trying to get the case dismissed, but now he's raising the stakes by threatening to quit music entirely if he's found guilty of the copyright infringement claim. In a statement from Sheeran's attorney on if the plaintiffs won the case, he stated, If that happens, I'm done. I'm stopping. I find it really insulting to devote my whole life to being a performer and a songwriter and have someone diminish it. Sheeran has vehemently insisted that any similarities between his 2014 hit and Gay's 1973 song are purely coincidental, and that those similarities were too common to constitute copyright infringement. To drive, <laughs> this was hilarious, uh, exactly what a singer would do. To drive his point home, he reportedly belted out various mashups of Van Morrison songs for the courtroom, which probably did not help him as much as he thought. The federal copyright infringement case was filed back in 2018 by Structured Asset Sales, an entity that owns part of the copyrights of Ed Townsend, who uh, was actually a co-writer on Let's Get It On. And just for an update, maybe him belting out Van Morrison did work. Judge Lewis Stanton dismissed the case, finding that the chord progression that was alleged to have been copied wasn't unique enough to merit a copyright claim. The judge stated that it is especially true here where the chord progression and the harmonic rhythm and let's get it on do not form a pattern, but instead essentially merge into one element. I might have to have you explain that, Roger, because it's still a little confusing to me. Uh, after the decision by Judge Staten, Sheeran stated, I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that baseless claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. So can you, first off, just to kind of help the listeners and myself, explain a little bit about what Judge Stanton is talking about here? Yes, absolutely. So there are two elements that I want to talk about. There's the chord progression, and then uh, the judge talks specifically about harmonic rhythm. And I know that the the plaintiff's uh, forensic musicologist, whose name is Alex Stewart, used the harmonic rhythm in the argument very specifically. So first, let's talk about the chord progression. The chord progression in, it's actually not identical in these pieces, but it's very similar. I won't get into the specifics of what the chord progression is, but it's four chords. These four chords, the way that they work together, there are tons of songs that use the same four chords. So if you wanted to base it on that, you'd be in deep trouble because mm-hmm. there, there's tons of songs that use these same four chords. <laughs> and if you were to hear them, you'd think, well, this could be any song, right? Now, Alex Stewart, um, he said, well, it's not just the fact that it's the four chords. It's the way that the chords move in a particular rhythm all together. And he was trying to pin it on that. So the movement of the chords at a particular time, that is harmonic rhythm. And in this particular instance, you probably will recognize it. It's this bum, 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 bum. So it's a particular kind of rhythm, and it goes in this cycle. Now, Stewart was trying to say the fact that they both have that same harmonic rhythm with almost the same chords, that means 
that it's a duplication. Mm. But in fact, even on that narrower criteria, there are tons of songs that still do that. One of my favorite is The Power of Love by Hugh Lewis and the News, which was written for uh, the first Back to the Future. And of course, I will never forget that because I had a crush on Ma- Michael J. Fox when I was growing I mean, up. he's an attractive fella. He's Obviously, an attractive fella. right? Yeah. Everyone's attractive in that movie. Oh my God, they're all beautiful, <laughs> right? So I think this is really interesting. Um, now, Power of Love, still written after the Let's Get It On, which was 1973, but before Ed Sheeran, of course. So it's a fairly common progression with a fairly common rhythm in a fairly common harmonic rhythm that upon which a lot of different songs are based. And so what we begin to see here is how musical vocabulary is like speech vocabulary. All of the phrases that we utter are combinations of things that have been said before. And music is very much like this. If it were not, it would be indecipherable (laughs) and intolerable. So in order for the song to be a song that's enjoyable to listen to and recognizable for us as a you know something nice to to hear it needs to draw on that set of shared vocabulary yeah no i mean oh my gosh roger you're a great conversational partner it's because i asked you about the concert uh but this perfectly segues into kind of really what i wanted to talk about obviously you might know this guy igor stravinsky but he said a good composer does not imitate he steals ultimately saying in my opinion that you know as and as you were saying you know the world around us influences us and we're allowed to pick and choose the parts we like to make something new. And with there being, I don't know how many chords are on a guitar, like five, six, I, whatever. At some point, somebody is going to play something that sounds similar. And so what are your thoughts on that concept of there being this no new original works of art? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question. I love that Stravinsky quote. That's amazing. It's a great quote. Yeah. Now, having said that, In terms of how many chords are on the guitar, infinite. There are infinite numbers of chords on a guitar. And the reason for that is just Or sorry, I meant more like the strings. Oh, got it. Yes, apologies, yeah. Right, well, so those are limited, but the chords that you can get out of them are unlimited. Okay, yes. And that's just just about like how combinatoriality works, right? How many permutations and combinations can you get, um, including, you know, the null set or whatever. But that doesn't mean that there are you know, uh, no rules in terms of how you put those things together. Um, And these aren't rules of like a law, like you can do this and you cannot do this, but it's a little bit like how grammar works. So there are only so many deviations from standard linguistic grammar that you can make before you're undecipherable. Language, Language works because it communicates, because it conveys meaning. And music is a little bit like that. It doesn't convey meaning, but it does convey that shared sense of connection and understanding. And in order to do that, it has to, in a certain sense, conform to a set of practices and conventions. And so that's what Stravinsky's talking about. He's constantly stealing those conventions. He's repurposing them. He's turning them around. He's flipping them upside down. Maybe he's taking them and stretching them in a way that's provocative. But if the connection to that convention isn't there, then it's just going to be 
nonsense. Yeah, there has to be something that draws people in that says, oh, yeah, this reminds me of something. Like, even developing the show, this show, I was, like, taking pieces from, I'm a huge Conan fan, you know, so I'm taking pieces from Conan and how to make conversations relatable and funny. Also taking pieces from some of the great conversational individuals in our lifetime and understanding what about that works. And I don't think that's copying or, you know, stealing whatsoever, but that's influence. That's being able to create something that's your own that has special meaning to you from the basis of your life, your life experiences. And I think you do have to get to that point or you do have to avoid that point where influence does become imitation because that's like, all right, this you're stealing from me. But as long as you stay below that line and use your influence to create something new and something unique and original, I do think we are creating new original pieces of uh, art at every moment because just because a little piece of it has existed before doesn't mean the majority of it hasn't or has. And it's so it's so interesting to know where the line is. One of my uh, favorite one of my favorite copyright cases of the past century is this one. All right, so Adam, I'm going to ask you to identify this song. Oh my gosh! So this is why I got out of the music industry because <laughs> I know the song as soon as you say it. Um, I think it's Mark Wahlberg. Nope, it's oh my! I know what this is. I know what it is. Give me, give me, give me a slight hint. Uh, somebody who is royalty, especially a royal who just passed away. Mm, they that person shares a name or title. Oh my gosh! Now I feel like a buffoon. Roger, <laughs> 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 uh, just give it to me. Okay, so that that I just sang you is the baseline for Under Pressure. Yeah, oh my a god, Queen, Queen, and David Bowie. However, Roger, no, here's the embarrassing thing. I just watched that movie like two weeks ago. Oh, really? No way. (laughs) That's so funny. This is why I don't work in the music industry anymore. This is why I'm in podcasting. Well, if you had said Ice Ice Baby, you would have been close because all that was changed in order to make it the baseline. I got I got the white rapper right. You did. You did get that. (laughs) So you were you were on the right track. You were going there. You were going there. But um, so Vanilla Ice only added one tiny pickup note yep. to that bass line and then turned it into his bass line for Ice Ice Baby. So he just adds da 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 just that little pickup. And in his mind, that made it okay. They eventually settled it out of court. Vanilla Ice eventually bought the publishing rights of Under Pressure for $4 million and now must include and credit Queen and David Bowie as co-songwriters for his hit song, Ice Ice Baby. But to me, that was an example of just stealing. I mean, that's just stealing, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the question is always like, where's the line? Where's the line between, you know, imitation borrowing, you know, just a little bit of friendly intertextuality, a conversation that's happening between the works, and then just theft. Where is that line? I don't think there's ever a good answer. Uh, but we keep trying. Yeah, it, ch- it changes, and each of these types of cases will, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we know exactly where that line is. We might, but each of these cases kind of gets us closer to better understanding what that looks like. And, of course, it, this kind of connects to our earlier part of the conversation that, you know, part of it has to do with what our expectations are for the product. So, because we live in a world where rights and, you know, uh, the, the, the royalties that accrue to performances and spins are very much a part of the uh, artistic endeavor, then we get litigious around these issues. 
um, in the 18th century, composers stole from each other all the time because they weren't thinking in the same terms that we do now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's get into Mozart and Haydn and obviously Bach just stealing whatever wasn't bolted down. Outright theft. But but I think the way that they thought about it... So, for instance, um, Handel and the composer Telemann stole each other's material all the time. Handel's Messiah, very popular at Christmas time. A couple of the passages in there are just outright stolen from the instrumental sonatas of Telemann. The, the two composers knew about this, and they saw it as a sign of their friendship, mm. that they stole each other's music. They saw it as a sign of respect, actually. Another fun fact I found was Handel, after Telemann became an avid gardener, would send him rare bulbs and tubers. Once when a shipment went missing, the rumor was Telemann had passed, but when the rumor was proven false, Handel sent a replacement shipment with a note that read, You can imagine my joy to find you are back in perfect health. The life and times of 18th century composers, ladies and gentlemen. Basically, what they were trying to do is just get performances of their works, you know, and and make money on mounting those performances. That was that was how they were, you know, benefiting financially from their music making. Now we think about the musical product in a very different way. So if you think about, you know, Handel trying to get performances of his music, those performances, the labor of those musical performances was the product. In other words, the product disappeared in the action of making it. It was ephemeral. It was labor that, you know, created the thing in the moment of its performance. And that was that. Now we think about musical products being intellectual property. And we think about them existing in the form of recordings to which the, the rights, you know, generate a particular kind of relationship so the fact that this has changed, I think, also means that our understanding of musical borrowing and intertextuality has to change along with it. Yeah, I was reading about like music within like the medieval Renaissance period, the Gregorian chant, the... And all that just being copied over and over and over again. And you're building little pieces off, you know, regardless of like what culture you're kind of in, what, you know, society you're in. But ultimately, it was just stealing that same chant over and over and over again. I think it's really interesting when you get into like this 18th century classical music and how it just completely changed. And what do you think that reason was? Because obviously, these are people making money from this. Uh, but it's not the same as it is now where, like you kind of mentioned, it's intellectual property. But like just kind of what changed where people were like, yeah, yeah, this is mine. Because like even going back to like the the music they played for Kings and stuff is all just like we're just sharing the music. And it's all like it felt like a collaborative effort. But now it's become to feel more independent in a way. Well, I think a, a couple of things happened at the same time. The first thing is just that the structure of um, commodity capitalism changed around musical practices. Mm. But it's not just that that changed and now it's altered the way we do things forever. I think also that kind of creativity, that kind of sharing and trading and messing things up, it moved over. So the very same way that medieval and Renaissance composers took chance and then built entire masses around them or took a dirty song and then made a very serious and solemn mass around it, that same thing is actually still going on. It's on TikTok. Okay, yeah, well, that's a good point. Think about how a sound on TikTok gets 
changed by somebody writing a piano tune underneath it, and then somebody puts a skit to it, and then somebody writes, you know, like some other variation on that and puts somebody else's heads onto it. That culture of transformation and modification that's still alive in underground ways. Yeah. yeah, it just moved over. So I also want to kind of get into cover bands too, because here's a band that's making money playing the songs of other people. Like, what are your thoughts there when it comes to like a story like this? That's so interesting. I mean, you know, a cover band always is working for the performance, whereas the recording artist is working for the recording. And what's fascinating about this is that the recording artist feeds forward into the cover band industry because those cover bands, some of them are so exact that they will mimic the precise timing of the track as it exists on the recording. And that's what fidelity is to them. And so in a way, they're not just covering the performances, they're covering the recording tracks of the artists that they're paying tribute to. So I think, you know, it's interesting because it kind of feeds forward into this cover band industry. A friend of mine in grad school wrote his dissertation on tribute bands. Uh, his name's John Paul Myers, and he teaches now at uh, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And I thought it was so fascinating how some of these tribute bands that he investigates, they, they're so exact that they have the paraphernalia down, they have the costumes <laughs> down. They, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exacting tribute. And this is another way, connecting back to our earlier conversation, that People are invested in the investigation of the past mm -hmm. through creative expression. And what I think is so interesting about this is that, you know, we have lots of different ways of honoring the past, lots of different ways of, of honoring the communities who came before us. Sometimes it's memorializing them in a text. Sometimes it's, you know, honoring them with, uh, you know, a kind of a course or a plaque or a public memorial or something like that. Sometimes it's through performance. I think that classical music is very good at that. Now popular music is starting to get good at that through these cover bands and tribute bands. And so, you know, every time we go to a performance of Don Giovanni at the Met, it is, in a way, it's like the biggest, best cover band experience you've ever witnessed, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's an, a hardcore 18th century cover band, mm -hmm. you know, that's being produced at a huge level. Now popular music is starting to do that, too. And so I think it's great. I, I think it's I mean, I love it way. as someone who was born in the 90s. I mean, going to like Hairball and like these 80 cover bands. It's like cool because like I will never be able to experience that music at that time period. But to even just get a just a small piece of it, I'm like, oh, man, you know, I wish I could have. But I'm happy that I'm seeing it right now. You have that. Yeah, exactly. You have a different way of relating to it. And that that comes through these cover bands. Yeah. Well, I want to go uh, back to the future. Uh, pun there awesome for uh future creators of, of music roger creators in general what inspiration can they obtain from the rise of something like let's say comic opera and its innovative ability in rounding it all the way back to your book peculiar attunements its ability to connect and move its audience what i think that uh people can glean from an episode like the rise of comic opera in the 18th century is the fascinating way in which works of art incorporate their own critique and their own history in order to move people toward a new social end. That's exactly what comic opera was doing. It was critiquing serious opera mm -hmm. 
making fun of it a little bit, taking the history of serious opera as its subject matter in order to say, hey, we can also represent real people. We don't have to just give people stories about kings and queens and gods and heroes. We can also talk about, you know, the average Joe and his experiences and foibles with a difficult love life or, you know, a chaotic marriage and put that on the stage. Now, for the 18th century, that was revolutionary. For the present day, it looks very different. But artworks are still talking about history, still talking about human heritage and, and human experience by involving themselves in a critique. And I think that's what really inspires me about, you know, our arts programs at Wesleyan, that students aren't just interested in making something new. They're interested in investigating human history through creative practice. I think that, you know, they're involved in that same process, that same legacy that comic opera gave us in the 18th century of creating social change through creative expression. Yeah, I think that's so important and just to have it accessible to everybody. I understand that people have to make money and they have to pay their bills and put a roof over their head and food on their tables, but I, I'm just a firm believer that art should be available to everyone. Everyone should have the same chance, like you're saying. I mean, it just shouldn't be for the kings and queens. It shouldn't be for the ultra-wealthy. It shouldn't be for the elite. The fact that I can put out this podcast, have this amazing conversation with you out to thousands and thousands of people in every corner of the world for free. That's amazing to me. That's amazing that we can spread this type of conversation. We can spread art. We can spread music. We can spread movies. And it's so beautiful. And it's it, it was so awesome being able to read about, you know, the comic opera and how it developed in the 18th century and all these things. So, I mean, I very much appreciate you being a, so interested in yourself. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for being a utopian alongside me. <laughs> you know, um, there's this great line in, in Plato's Republic where uh, Glaucon and Socrates are talking about music and they're... They're a little bit worried about involving it in the Republic and they're, they're talking about how, how it's so effective at creating emotions in people. And finally they get to the end of the conversation and, and they say, well, you know, I think, in fact, everyone knows that rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places in the soul. And that's good because what other end should there be for music? if not the love mm. of beauty. I think that's a good way uh, to end our conversation here, Roger. Hey, pod listeners. It's such a huge pleasure to meet you over here by the water cooler. Thanks again for your engagement and your ears. It is an honor to be included in the top five. Thanks, Adam. Are you ready to jump into this uh, final news story? Which, man, I'm excited for I'm this one. I'm excited for this Let's one. Let's do it. <laughs> and this is a actually viewer submitted story. So uh, we haven't had one of those in a while. So I'm excited, I was excited to get it going. Because for the viewers, we actually had a different story lined up instead mm -hmm. of this one. But when you sent this one through and said, you know, this is a, a listener article, I'm always going to lean towards a listener article regardless because, you know, you've got to give the people what they want. But you picked a bloody good story. It's a good one. It's a good one, Tomiko. M is the listener who sent this in. But this one, it's going to be so much better. Yeah. All right. So this is from Unheard Dark Web, Catherine D., August 22nd, 2023. Asia's influencer farms are dystopian, but America isn't much better. Over the weekend of this article's release, online technological personality Linus Ekenstam shared a video from an Indonesian influencer farm 
that showed would-be social media stars working in individual pods or rooms with ring lights and smartphones filming content for merchandise. And listeners, I highly recommend going to watch this video because it is something else. Dystopian. Dystopian to the max. Uh, And they're not small operations either. Think call centers, but instead of thousands of cold calls a day, Hundreds to thousands of influencers create videos with the hopes that viewers will click add to cart. If you thought influencer culture was creepy, imagine it at an industrialized scale. This type of content generation isn't limited to Indonesia alone. Livestream e-commerce in China is a well-known tactic in which social media personalities push out specifically tailored content from influencer incubators over eight-hour shifts, leading to a multi-billion dollar industry. As far as we know, these same types of content farms don't exist, at least not in the same way. You know, we have something like influencer houses in the U.S. because for the most part, they're not as appealing. Yet the U.S. is no less susceptible to consumer trends and more seriously, propaganda. In the United States, online personalities and celebrities occupy a unique emotional space. They create an illusion of intimacy between the content creator and consumer, We'll take their makeup recommendations or watch them play a game, but we'll also listen to stories about their everyday lives and sometimes intimate details, often affording them more time than we would our actual friends. We crave a certain unvarnished authenticity, even when it's completely scripted. This isn't to say parasocial relationships between influencers and viewers don't exist in Indonesia and China. They certainly do, but the texture is different. They're more formalized and therefore more easily replicable. When Americans crave at least a veneer of authenticity, in Asia, there's a greater hunger for plain content, which is how 24-7 streams came into being. It may be tempting to sneer at the dystopian nature of Asia's influencer farms, but is the Fox intimacy of our social media stars any better? We now live in an increasingly dystopian world in which parasocial relationships with influencers are replacing actual human bonds. With these boundaries becoming even more blurred than before, it is difficult to know where our online life starts and our real life ends. This might just be the most disturbing part about all of this. So, Lucy, speaking to uh, parasocial relationships, what is real, what isn't, on your podcast, Learning Things, you covered an episode on the life of Judy Garland, and you had shared a quote from an old Hollywood gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, and I think it's important to share the whole quote to feel the impact, but she said, one look into the eyes of the mother told you what was on their mind. If I can get this kid of mine on the screen, we might just hit a big. They took little creatures scarcely old enough to stand or speak and drilled them to shuffle through a dance step or mumble a song. They robbed them of every phase of childhood to keep waves in their hair, the pleats in their dresses, and pink polish on the nails. And I thought that was such an impactful quote because even, you know, how many years later, it's all just the same with a new label. And it seems like as people start to understand these relationships more, you know, these parasocial relationships... Some are trying to walk the fine line and trying to just, quote unquote, hit it big and play upon that Fox relationship that is being built without really the consideration for, you know, what is going to be the impact of building from inauthenticity. And as we hear more stories like Judy Garland, whether it be uh, the likes of someone like Miley Cyrus speaking up about her time in that Disney sphere, like, right, like there has to be some recognition that this is the wrong way to go about doing this type of thing. Yeah, uh, I think on the kid side of it, and whether or not you have a child under the age of, you know, eight or nine, and you're the one in control of their career, I think that comes down to consent. If your child isn't old enough to decide for themselves with all of the ramifications that fame comes with, I don't like how it sits. I have mm-hmm. a lot of respect for creators who don't show the faces of their children 
uh, on social media platforms. For example, I'm thinking H3H3, so Ethan Klein and Ella Klein's child. They share photos when they're a baby because they haven't developed facial features that make them recognizable yet. But as soon as that kid started going to primary school, every family photo that gets put on Instagram, there's an emoji over the kid's face. You know, I really respect that. I like that because the kid is developing these recognizable features that will change their life in ways that a lot of parents I don't think realize because they are hungry for that fame grab, as you're saying. I don't think it's fair on the kids. I really don't. Unless that child, there are too many parents that are thinking selfishly, I think, for what it could do for them, whether it's financially, whether it's, you know, they want to live vicariously through their child, thinking of Judy Garland's mother. Um, Shirley Temple's mother was extremely wanting to live vicariously through Shirley's life. And you are sacrificing your child's life, I think, in ways that you don't realize. You're taking things away from them. So on that, I, I yeah, I don't like the the kids side of it, but the fame grab is, is an interesting one. And and this, if you haven't seen the video, I, I, I can't agree more. You, you've got to have a look at this dystopian video, but think like a, a office space, like an office building and a big skyscraper. And they've just got one floor that has just been converted where every single individual office space is doing something different. The video pans from girls that are trying on makeup. The next one, there's a girl with a clothes rack behind her testing this out. And it's important to note that Asia as a whole are very good at mass commodifying things. So think India with IT tech support. They are so good at that. China with goods. Everything is made in China. Korea with pop music. K-pop is, you know, they... Asia is very good at mass commodifying things. So this is nothing new, as you said. It's just a new turn in, the, in what we're used to, I think. But I, yeah, I don't, when I see this stuff on TikTok, I don't know what everyone else's algorithm is like, but I get a lot of this stuff. Like you just scroll through and it pops up alive, you know, every five regular TikToks, you'll get a live TikTok that okay. you can decide whether or not you want to watch before you click on it. I get a lot of these ones and it's so inauthentic that I cannot imagine watching it personally. But I find it bizarre to think that maybe over there, that's fine for them. You know, an influencer that is kind of, and, and no disrespect for these people, they are just trying to make money and this is just their job. But I, when I look at their streams, they're just dead in the face. I've had people, I've had conversations with people where it's like, are all of these people getting paid or is there some human trafficking going on here? Because some of them do not look happy to be there. And so I can't imagine people in Asia relating to this in the same way that we would relate to our favorite YouTube creators. I don't know. What do you think about it? I think there is this disconnect between understanding Western culture and Eastern culture. And obviously, you know, yes, I want to talk a little bit because I know you spent some time working in Japan and kind of working oh my on, God, you know, you appealing to the You're Western me of audience. Evans. I feel like I should be eating hot wings. <laughs> You've done your research. That's, that's what they say, right? Um, but yeah, you spent some time, you know, trying to appeal to Western audiences while also maintaining, you know, the local Japanese followers. But they're that's something that even I have struggled with connecting with audience because my whole audience is mainly Western, the Western sphere, quote unquote, the Western yeah. sphere of what Likewise. we consider kind of everything that Britain was like, hey, we're going to conquer most of the world. And that's what, <laughs> you know, you consider the Western sphere now, right? And so there's very different ideas of what is acceptable and what people like that you don't always realize because you're so stuck into the echo chamber of, oh, yeah, this makes sense from a Western perspective that... 
I want authenticity from my content creators. If I'm going to buy something, I'm going to buy something because somebody is selling it to me in a way that I feel connected to that person. Yeah. Whereas in Eastern cultures, you don't always see that. It's not as important to have that connection. Even you know, I haven't been over to any Eastern uh, countries. But I know just from friends who have traveled over there, even walking down the streets, it's a very different experience where a lot of people are just, I just need to go and get to where I need to get. I don't want to have the conversations here in the U.S. Like people just stop you on the street and be like, hey, how's your day going today? How's your day going today? And not, I'm not trying to say like one's right and one's wrong, but people just live a very different life. It's Yeah, people are just living a very different life. And like. What do you what what did you pick up during your time working in Japan in that market? They're very formal, very polite. Mm-hmm. I think it's a culture shock for uh, Australians do spend a lot of time in Japan and Indonesia because we are so close. For the people who may not have thought about it before, one flight across Australia can take 8 hours and that's by air. So for us to then try to leave the country is very time consuming (laughs) and also really expensive. So a lot of the time that Australia spends overseas, it's usually in places like Bali because it's really cheap for us to go there. Mm -hmm. Japan is very polite, very businesslike, exactly what you're saying. A lot of them are in a hurry, particularly in the cities, as when you go further remote, there's a lot more uh, camaraderie and and culture. But it is important to remember that they have a richer culture than we do in terms of spending time with family and communication. So while they may not be stopping at 10 o'clock on the street and having a conversation with each other, they really value their family time at home, all of these Asian uh, cultures. So it is kind of swings and roundabouts. It's like a balancing thing. While we are going to place more emphasis in social contact in one area, they are going to do it in, you know, a different way. Yeah, that's a very good point. They're really, really culturally uh, family oriented and they look after their elders. And that is something that we have lost in the Western world. I've got to give a recommendation to a fantastic Netflix show I watched recently to you and your listeners. It was called, I'm ready for the machete noise, um, something like How to Live to 100. I'll take it from here, Lucy. The Netflix show is titled Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones. And it was going over five different cultures around the world and how they, their lifestyles, their food, their ways of thinking help these people to build these communities with a high concentration of what is known as a centenarian, people over 100. And one thing that remained prevalent as one of these golden reasons for how they are living so old is their connection to each other, to community, to the land around them. And and to, and to the elders, <laughs> we are losing the plot in the Western world with that. <laughs> we just ship our parents off to old homes and pay them a visit once a week, and you know. So yeah, the cultural shift is there. Yeah, the cultural shift is is very apparent in something like this, and we can see this and be like, wow, this is really strange. And at the same time, it can be strange as well. I mean, this is something that you even see this kind of blurring into uh, a culture here or a content created creation culture here in the U.S. where, you know, you can see people just getting together and creating things like I talked about influencer houses. Like you're pretty much doing the same thing, but you're doing it for different audiences that are going to want different things and want different things from their content creators. And again, in a similar way to in America, when we privatize something, we pour millions of dollars into it. We don't necessarily get the same turnaround as Asia. They have, in some cases, a lot lower minimum uh, wage. 
So like the comparison you're making between maybe these influencer offices in Indonesia where these people are not getting paid nearly as much as, say, these phase houses, which cost $10 million to buy and then absurd amounts of money to maintain, there's only six people in there. So the turnarounds for authenticity, it's, a, it's an interesting point to make. It's like you're spending a lot of money, but what's the turnaround? What is that turnover difference? You know, that's one of the things. Obviously, you know, having a background in journalism, you understand like following the money. It's like where is the money being made and who's spending this money is so important. And the same thing with, you know, these influencer farms is like somebody's making a lot of money. And I do, you know, kind of looking more them. into this. Yes, yeah, yeah. not these individuals, but they see it as just another job. They don't always look at it as I'm creating content for TikTok because I want to be a TikTok star. And that's where we also have to be more aware in Western culture is for sometimes this is just a job for them. Like they might not want to be like uber famous and, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe they have that like, oh, maybe I can make it and kind of make it out of here. But that's like everyone's story. It's like, yeah, I want to do, you know, something and I want to make it out of here and I want to do what I love and figure it out along the way. But I think we look at something like this and we say, oh, it's and I know obviously it's a lot closer for you in Australia, but we look at it as something on the other side of the world. And it's so strange to us. But maybe it's more normal there. Yeah, I'm trying to think about whether we do maybe find it closer to than to you guys. I don't think we do. In Australia, at least, you guys set the tone. America, you set the tone for culture for the most Number part. Number one, baby. The yeah. most American thing I can say right there. <laughs> the most American conquering. thing I can say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Um, but, you know, we get some of our culture from Britain. But for the most part, we are following suit for whatever you guys do. I mean... You're making all the movies. You're making all the. You're the ones with the big budgets in Hollywood, and and that is what essentially sets the tone for us. So, no, I don't think we are necessarily closer. Actually, now that I think about it, I think we're closer geographically, and we do spend time there. But yeah, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm kind of downplaying that a bit because I I probably do have more knowledge of of Asian cultures. And, and the people around me would just based on the fact that our family holidays. And you spent time out there and it's easier to get that way exactly. versus, you know, it's a 17 hour flight from Australia to, you know, where I'm in uh, in the U.S. here. I do want to kind of touch on, you know, kind of that Judy Garland quote a little bit about and obviously talking about the impact of parasocial relationships. And like even, you know, I just saw that um, Hugh Jackman and... Oh, oh they just gosh, split. Um, At the day of recording, Hugh Jackman and his wife has just just split up. I get, oh, my gosh. I know she's like a great actress in Australia. Now I'm going to do you no, know, the you know what? on myself. No, you're not. You're not in the wrong. Deborah Lee Furness is her name. Um, I don't I didn't know who she was. So don't feel bad about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel better. You're Australian. Yeah. You should know. Um, but anyways, like reading the comments and kind of getting to this conversation on parasocial relationships, reading the comments around some of these and even my partner had shared with uh, me this mommy TikToker who used to post, you know, her kids and faces of her kids and Everyone in the comment section was like, I'm her auntie, I'm her auntie, I'm her auntie. And then the mom decided to blur the photos as, uh, you know, as they became more recognizable. And everyone was so pissed off. It's like, you, you can't take these kids away from us. We're their aunties. And I think we're seeing the same thing, you know, with Hugh Jackman here and as their relationship is ending, like everybody is like, oh my gosh, man, this is a couple that I loved. And, you know, I'm so invested in their relationship. But why? Like, you don't know. You know, you don't know the ins and outs of their every day. You're just seeing bits and pieces going back to the, you know, the marketing for Barbie. You're like, we're only seeing the bits and pieces that they want us to see 
And that creates this really, really, really unhealthy relationship with influencers, with celebrities, with athletes, because we're so invested in our lives. And I think social media has allowed us to be so invested in their lives but we're still only connecting with a few hours maybe of their day when really we're all living the same 24 hours and we're having these disconnections between, oh yeah, I think this person is like this way and I'm going to put that in my mind that they're like this way. You know, Post Malone is this amazing person, but I'm creating this idea of Post Malone that's not actually Post oh, yeah. Malone. You and I definitely have a parasocial relationship with Post Malone. <laughs> <laughs> but- you know, at the same time, you know, I think we have good intentions, but yes. there are people who don't have those same good intentions. And that's the unhealthy aspect of creating content is you sometimes have to realize that you are putting something out to the world and you, you know, going back to like, how do you choose content? You're putting something out to the world that you see a certain way. But once you put it out into the world, anybody can see it any way they want. And sometimes people don't always have, you know, the best intentions on how they want to interact with that media. No, and you're exactly right when it's not always malicious. A parasocial relationship is defined as a one-way relationship, put simply. And we see it a lot these days in online culture because of the way we can connect to someone, whether we relate to a YouTuber, watch a Twitch streamer, spend our free time when we're feeling a little bit vulnerable and tired from work, watching someone else's content who we like. Um, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it actually fuels their careers. Mm -hmm. If parasocial relationships didn't exist, these YouTubers wouldn't be making the money that they are making. But it can turn weird. It can get really unhealthy. Uh, I'm not sure how much you and your listeners are familiar with the world of Twitch in the gaming streaming platform. If you're not, it's just basically a live streaming platform that most people play games on. And for about five hours a night for about three years, pretty much full time, I was a Twitch streamer playing games like, you know, Fortnite and Call of Duty and things like that, whatever tickled my fancy. And the important thing to remember here is I was not a big one. I had, um, you know, an average viewer is what it's referred to in terms of, you know, you count YouTube success by views, you count Twitch success by how many people you have watching you at any given time. I was averaging like 30 to 50 people, not many, and definitely not many in comparison to people like Ninja or people like uh, Dr. Disrespect, who average anywhere between 20 and 80,000 people, XQC, for example. They've got a city watching them. That's insane. But I wasn't one of them. And so, you know, when I started receiving three-page handwritten letters from older men professing their love to me, that definitely kind of made me take a step back and go like, oh, dear, I don't know this person from a bar of soap. I know their first name. And it's not their fault. I definitely, I think action is your fault. A parasocial relationship, it's, you cannot blame that on the viewer. I think you can only expect them to be distant to a certain extent, because at the best of times, I think we all use content to help us get through a hard time. And sometimes that content does come in the form of a person and that's okay. But you have to remember that, that you don't know them. When someone asked me, because I was a big One Direction girl, like when One Direction came <laughs> out, I was like 12 or 13. Oh man, I loved them. And I had a friend ask me recently, like, what was it? Like, why? Why do you think that happened? And I said, okay, well, first of all, think about Beatlemania. It's the same thing. But in terms of what that is, think about when you're reading a book, you know, a novel, a fantasy novel even, especially actually, 
and you're connecting with these characters and you're they're telling you the story and then maybe you finish the book and you start thinking about it more and what else are they up to and what would that character do? You know, you know this character back to front because you've read 600 pages of a first-person narrative of what they think and how they go about their day. That's the same thing. You know, you watch these Twitch streamers and they're just telling you about their day and you get an instant gratification when you write mm-hmm. a message in chat and they read it with a two-second delay. That definitely helps. <laughs> but to wrap that up, I don't think parasocial relationships are bad. I think what results from them is bad. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we all have these relationships and we see things in different ways and how we consume. At the end of the day, right? Like, obviously, there's a person behind making content, but at the end of the day, it is content for you to consume And you get to decide how you consume it. You get to decide how that content makes you feel. But when it crosses the line is when you're sending those letters. You know, I received death threats. You know, it's those things that... God, what'd you do? (laughs) I said animals should be protected. And somebody said... Oh, that's awful You're right, but fuck you at the same time, right? I cannot believe you even (laughs) utter that. Uh, Uh, But I think it is important to hear those stories from the side of content creators. But also at the same time, how you talk about those stories matter. I don't know if you've... Like Miranda Cosgrove, who was on iCarly and the iCarly reboot now, uh, but she talked about somebody, uh, a stalker who literally burned himself alive in her backyard. And she was like just very nonchalant about it. I think she later talked about it. She's like, I just don't want people to like spend time on it. I just want to move it past. I don't want people to be like, oh, yeah, this is how I get mentioned on a podcast by Miranda Cosgrove is lighting myself on fire. There is a reason that police departments hide details about serial killers to prevent Mm -hmm. copycat crimes. And it's one of those things where it's like you have to be very aware of how you talk about the relationships as the content creator. You can't just say, well, oh, this person specifically is sending me these messages because that person's going to be like, I'm getting to her. You sometimes have to be aware of that. And that's why I wanted to ask you. It's like, hey, are you comfortable talking about this? And, you know, obviously, I think it does come from, you know, I remember I was listening to this. I can't remember what the podcast is. It was Emma Chamberlain's podcast, Anything Goes, on parasocial relationships and also a combination of a few studies I'd read. But Emma Chamberlain's coverage is a good place to start. But I was listening to this conversation and they were talking about why we have these parasocial relationships and how our development, and I'm glad you kind of talked about One Direction, like as we're growing up and we're developing and we're learning who we are, we're having these very deep connections with people. Like for me, it's like Paramore and Haley Williams. I'm like, oh yeah, oh, she's a sick I dyed ass my woman, hair bright red when I was <laughs> nine. To, I think, I don't remember how old I was, like a temporary mm-hmm. hair dye because I thought she was the shit. She is. <laughs> she, oh, she is. Oh my goodness. But like, she was such an important figure in my life, her music, the kind of same music that uh, punky gothic music that they released, you know, the rock music. And it was so important during my development that like, as I grew up, I was like, oh, I'm growing up with Paramore. You're growing up with One Direction. And so they have a deeper connection with you. And they were kind of talking about how a lot of people who have these very unhealthy relationships later in life are still going through those or have struggled going through those development stages and are still stuck in that development stage. And so they still see it as, oh yeah, why, why am I like now you're like, why am I, why was I obsessed with One Direction? Like, yeah, there weren't, they're really nothing. They had great hair and everything and they sung, you know, some good (laughs) songs, but you know, as you grow and as you develop and become more mature, you understand that those relationships and some of the like, you know, buying their hair from eBay is like, Ew. it's a little weird. And you're like understanding that because you're more mature. 
But for individuals who may not be able to get to that development level, I'm not trying to like be like, it's okay to be a stalker because you haven't developed into no. you know mature sense yet. But a lot of that podcast talked about why that was happening and why you know some of these people do have these mental health issues because they're just not developed enough to understand the maturity of what they are doing. Oh, definitely. I remember with Twitch, um, you get a higher concentration of parasocial relationships on Twitch purely because it's a live setting. And when you type something into chat, the person you are watching will answer it within two seconds and or thereabout. But also for a smaller streamer such as myself, uh, it was, you know, it's guaranteed that I'm going to see their message because it's one of 15 that's there per minute. So I'm going to see it. And that's the whole point of me being there. So when you write something into a chat and you're watching a streamer and you like them, like they're fun, they're, they're, they're hitting the right notes for you as in terms of what you want from a creator. And like you type a joke into chat and you make them laugh. It's like, oh my God, we could be friends. Like they just laughed at me. This is a natural human conversation that we're having. First of all, it's it's obviously not. Yes, you are looking at someone. Yes, you can hear them. Yes, they are reacting to you. But they can't see you. The streamer can't see you. They're just in entertaining their, their audience based on this text that they've just received. But having said that in terms of the, you know, um, mental health, you can always tell as a streamer when someone would come into your chat and you could tell if there was uh, a screw loose, so to say. No, I don't, I'm not, I don't think anyone should diagnose anyone. Um, but you know what I mean when you can kind of work out like what might be going on for that person and you tailor what you say to them accordingly. So I would be more freely myself with some viewers when I knew that they're, they were pretty, at least normal for whatever the fuck that word means. <laughs> but there were some times where I'd get a viewer and I'd be like, oh, okay, I'm going to be a little more careful with this person because I can sense that they're going to get attached for something Maybe that I don't even know how to finish the sentence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> As I kind of talked about that last episode with Dr. Mark Williams, it's you can be anyone you want online. You can't be yeah. anyone you want in person. So it's a lot easier to have authentic online connection. Well, at least one sided authentic connection when you can pretend to be whoever, you know, you think that person's going to connect with. And I think a lot of individuals who don't have that type of authentic connection in person are going to go online and try to build that connection because that's Great the point. ethos of being a human is connecting. Going back to this first story is like, we want to connect. We want to go to the movies together. But if we can't have that, our brains just want to create it. And sometimes we create it in very unhealthy ways. Oh, great point. And there is also a point to be made that the people that are spending, you know, eight hours a night watching a Twitch stream are not going to be the quote unquote average American. Mm -hmm. The average American is or working. Or average person around the world. Average person <laughs> is working, you know, sometimes 10 hour days, 50 hour weeks. Yep. By the time they get home and they've got a family or they're cooking dinner or maybe they're a single parent, they've got so much stuff to do that the last thing that a lot of these people do is sit down for six hours and watch a streamer. So there is a point to be made that the people that do have the time to do that, maybe they've got a disability and that's why they're home for a lot of the days. Maybe they, as you exactly what you're saying, why I brought this up, maybe they just don't have those natural in-person social skills that a lot of people can struggle to develop and so that they feel more comfortable behind a keyboard as opposed to an in-person. So, yeah, there's a point to be made that the people and your audience on Twitch is not the average person for the most part and there's always an essence of remember that, you know, remember that the people that – 
are in your stream and not the same people you might bump into at the pub. So you've got to remember that in mm-hmm. terms of how you speak to them. And that's what I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just kind of reading about that today. It's like online obviously is not real life. You know, no. if you like use Reddit, the the I know you did um, an episode on Am I the Asshole? And I think a lot of people look at that and we're like, oh, yeah, that's the consensus of like who I should be. You know, for people who don't know on Reddit, they have a subreddit, Am I the Asshole? And people like say, hey, this is a situation that happened in my life. Was I the asshole or pretty much am I the bad guy or am I the good person? And a lot of those takes are, you know, grounded in reality. But at the same time, you know, if you ask about like, say, a relationship, people don't have the context for that relationship. So they're just going to say, oh, break up with that person. Or the context is very heavily biased by the original poster. Exactly. In the same way that you talk to a friend, you might omit details. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I think people are so... Some people are so terminally online that they just assume that this is what the world is, you know, especially like when you get into 4chan and 8chan and 16chan and all oh, those, type of, you know, very chan central. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like those are the type of individuals who they see what's online and they see it as this is what real life is when really it's sometimes you have to get off, you know, the computer, you have to go outside, get that fresh air, interact with people. But at the same time, individuals don't always have the ability to do so. And so it's just this weird situation where it's like, how do you come to a conclusion that works when everybody's so different? And I think that's the hardest thing when it comes to content creation is your audience is going to be, has the potential to literally be anyone. Mm -hmm. And as a content creator, you have to be aware of that as you're releasing content, as you're putting yourself out there. I mean, I'm a freaking cartoon. Like, people don't know what I look like. They see a cartoon. That cartoon could be a completely different version of myself. Like, obviously now, Lucy, you know what I look like, and it's pretty similar. No, you have very lovely blue eyes. I'm going <laughs> to give a secret to the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but I did that because of that past experience with those death threats. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm putting myself out, you know, publicly to the world. I'm sharing my opinions. You know, sometimes we do have very controversial stories that people can get very heated about. But at the same time, you know, my family's not wanting to be public. My friends aren't wanting to be public. My partner doesn't want to be public. And so I have to understand the impact of the content I put out, not just to my audience, but how it impacts my family, my friends, my close people, my coworkers. And that's something that I don't think content creators are always as aware of as they should be. No, and you're preaching to the choir. I had a more malicious kind of stalker early on. Um, It was a kid. It was a kid in Australia with too much time on his hands. He worked out exactly where I lived uh, by a, I remember he was, I remember getting, you know, messages sent from a, a very loyal viewer who I still speak to to this day, who said, hey, this guy messaged me about he knows where you live. And I was like, oh God, like, I'm not going to confirm or deny, but what's he saying? And he said, you know, he's worked out where you live based on this photo on your Instagram, because there's a window next to me, not behind me, just next to me running along, you know, kind of vertically into the background of the photo. He worked out where I lived based on that, based on my stepbrother's Instagram, uh, once came into my my Twitch channel with the name of one of my stepbrother's friends. And I was like too dumbfounded to even think that, that it wasn't them. I was like, this is so niche. This is such a niche part of my life for you to pretend to be. And he, you know, he gypped me. I I got got basically. And I thought that I was talking to my stepbrother's friend until eventually he revealed himself. And, and then one time I got 
I had moved interstate. I moved from, you know, New South Wales to Victoria. I wasn't living at home. And pizza was delivered. And I get a call from my stepdad saying, hey, Luce, you silly goose, you've ordered pizza back home. Like, and I said, I didn't order that pizza. And it was paid for. And it was, you know, at my doorstep. And and I freaked out. I'm, I'm thinking like, who delivered it? I'm asking my stepbrother, uh, my stepfather. I'm saying, who delivered it? You know, did they say anything? Was it actually someone in a Domino's uniform? Because I'm thinking, was it this bloody kid? Or like, did you, I was even scared that my stepdad had said like, oh no, she doesn't live here anymore. She lives in Victoria. And, you know, kind of fueling this. And it wasn't fair to my family. So I had to sit my parents down and be like, you're going to think that my ego is inflated beyond all means right now. (laughs) But seriously, there are people that know where I live for whatever reason, want to, you know, stir stuff up in my life and show that power that they know where I live, that malicious power to kind of make me uncomfortable. Don't post me on your Instagrams. Don't uh, no, post me on your Instagrams, but, you know, when we're at the family farm, for example, which my parents moved to a beautiful farm and don't post me in that. I don't want to be connected in case it implicates them. It's not fair. Exactly what you're saying. Well, that's even something like, you know, I worked with a private eye to kind of like just get rid of as <gasps> yes! much as uh, as much as like me on the Internet. Like I got a new phone number because like you could type in my phone number and there's my address right there. And that's something, you know, especially in what? this space. Pause. Oh, my gosh. What do you Here mean? in the U.S., there's plenty of sites, probably in Australia, too. I don't want to put any ideas into any oh, nefarious listeners' minds. I'm going to be the stalker. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's something like, I was like, okay, if I'm going to get serious about this and, you know, as the audience continues to grow and as this becomes more of a viable career option, mm. I do have to be more aware of Obviously, going back to, you know, the story, it's like I want to be authentic in the content and in the takes that I put out to the world. Because if I believe something's, you know, true and I've done the research to back that up and I feel comfortable about it, I've talked to people in the space and it's an opinion that I'm like, this is what I think. The sky is blue. And somebody's like, I don't like that. Someone's colorblind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to change around that opinion just because I'm going to have people that are going to say... I don't like that. And because of that, I don't like you. And at the same time, you know, you, I have to be very aware of how that impacts, like I was saying, the rest of my family, kind of turning this around, you know, back to the Barbie movie, because any good host kind of perfectly wraps everything up. But I do, think there do. Is, <laughs> <laughs> I do think there is a more importance to like you as a woman to be more aware online than me. Like, I don't consider like, oh, somebody sent me a pizza to my house. Like, I am going to be like, oh, yeah, that's strange, mm. but I'm not going to be as concerned as somebody who might not feel as comfortable with that happening. It, it comes it comes down to, you know, men don't get attacked in dark car parks nearly as much as women. It's a simple fact. You know, it's something that like I think the Barbie movie did really well was share that perspective that a lot yeah. of men don't always have. And that's why I feel like it was such, you know, an important movie to put out there into the world. And I think why it connected with so many people, because it showed something that half the world doesn't experience. Yeah. And it can hopefully help situations where it's like, should I send a pizza to that streamer's home address that I had to take, <laughs> you know, a week to find? Maybe I shouldn't because that would be weird. And having those mature conversations with ourselves because we're seeing, you know, we're having empathy with each other. (laughs) That's like the premise of kind of what I was trying to get to. Movies like that that really connect with people can really show that, hey, there's a bigger idea of empathy and how we connect with one another. And 
once again, getting away from that main character syndrome, like we're not the only person here in the world. Like other people have very complex lives and you have to understand that just because we're only seeing bits and pieces of it doesn't mean or means that we might be missing context when we want to say, oh, they broke up. No, they were perfect together. We don't know what is going on behind the scenes there. We don't know. Yeah, just on the idea of content presenting tricky topics in a, in a good way. I'm currently watching The Sopranos for the first time with my boyfriend. Oh my, what a beautiful show. Incredible. Beautiful show. And <laughs> something that I've noticed, um, I think we're a couple of seasons in now, there's been some quite graphic sexual assault scenes and uh, just the way that they handle how the women in the roles are presented I think is really bloody good. I don't know if you watched House of Dragon. I was a big Game of Thrones fan. And when you're a big Game of Thrones fan, you know what that comes with. Like you got to deal with some really like hard scenes to watch sometimes. I don't think House of Dragons did their scenes very well at all. I think it was really gross. And just Mm -hmm. in the first episode, the childbirth scene, and then later on in the show with some more graphic scenes even the childbirth scene was just unbelievably I couldn't I was so uncomfortable and not in a way that I think it wanted you to be it was like for example in the Sopranos they showcase an assault scene where it is so graphic emotionally that it makes you sit there and go like holy shit you really feel the ramifications for the character they didn't graphically show this act they graphically showed the emotions of the character of the woman that was going through it House of Dragon was so uncomfortable to watch because I'm just looking at all this blood. I'm just looking at this whole scene. I'm thinking, what on? It just felt like it was written by a man. There are physical ramifications always in a situation like that for a woman, but emotionally it is always going to trump those physical issues. And whenever a scene shows the graphic violence of it, I think it misses the whole importance of what that act actually does to a woman. And Sopranos are doing it really well. I was really impressed. I mean, once again, like we need more examples of showing like this is the the realism of what happens, the yes. authenticity. You know, if we continue to create things that aren't real, but they make us feel better, like, sure, that's good every once in a while to consume that content. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that we have to have that realism to understand the impact of our actions and how it impacts other people and how, I mean, romantic movies have been notorious for pushing out content that you're like, this is not how an actual real relationship goes. But it's so infused into our culture that now people are doing these really weird things like standing outside a window with the boombox. Like, yeah, that looks good in a movie, but sometimes it's not the most romantic thing if that person doesn't want you to be out there. If that person doesn't know you, uh, start there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good point. Start by an introduction, maybe. Good point. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode today? Yes. This is from the Jamaica Observer, September 18th, 2023. Black students suspended twice for hairstyle. School says it isn't discrimination. After serving an in-school suspension over his hairstyle, a black high school student in Texas immediately received the same punishment when he arrived at school Monday wearing his hair as before in twisted dreadlocks tied on top of his head. Uh, Listeners, if you need a picture, it can be seen in the article. Daryl, a junior at the Texas high school, was initially suspended for his hairstyle the same week Texas outlawed racial discrimination based on hairstyles in the newly enacted Crown Act. School officials said his dreadlock violated the dress code, which are as stated... For male students, hair must not extend below the top of a t-shirt collar or to be gathered or worn in a style that would allow the hair to extend below the top of the t-shirt collar. 
below the eyebrows or below the earlobes when let down. The Crown Act, an acronym for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair, is intended to prohibit race-based discrimination and bar employers and schools from penalizing individuals because of hair texture or protective styles, which includes afros, braids, dreadlocks, twists, or bantu knots. Texas is one of 23 states to enact a version of the Crown Act. A federal bipartisan version of the Crown Act passed in the House of Representatives 235 to 189 in 2020, but failed to acquire enough Republican support in the Senate for a successful vote. For black individuals, hairstyles are more than just a fashion statement. Hair has played an important role across the black diaspora. Those who share a similar cultural region but currently reside elsewhere, uh, said Candace Matthews, a national minister of politics for the New Black Panther Nation, not to be confused with the anti-Semitic uh, New Black Panther organization, she stated, dreadlocks are perceived as a connection to wisdom. This is not a fad, and this is not about getting attention. Here is our connection to our soul, our heritage, and our God. Historians say braids, dreadlocks, and other black hairstyles served as a method of communication across African societies, including to identify tribal affiliation or marriage status, and as clues to safety and freedom for those who were captured and enslaved. After the abolishment of slavery in 1865, black Americans and their hair became political. Although the Civil Rights Act of 1964 banned discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, black Americans continued to face professional and social stigma for not adopting grooming habits that fit the white European beauty standards and beauty norms. The issue of race-based hair discrimination in the workplace has long existed alongside concerns in public and private schools. In 2020, the same high school that suspended Daryl attempted to bar another black student from attending his high school graduation due to the length of his dreadlocks. And in 2018, a white referee in New Jersey told a black high school wrestler to cut his dreadlocks or forfeit the match. Later, viral videos of the wrestler having his hair cut with scissors as the crowd watched spurred passage of the Crown Act in New Jersey. So... <laughs> From this article, I wanted to separate what I thought was an important quote that got to the the root of the story, and obviously pun intended on that. But Daryl's mother had shared that all the men of her family going back generations have or have had dreadlocks. She said, our hair is where our strength is. That's our roots. He has his ancestors locked into his hair, and he knows that. When we discuss our image and how we represent ourselves to the broader world, how important is our cultural heritage and our ability to, you know, identify and create those, and I think this is really important, safe communities, because I know you've shared before, you know, you shared the quote, the first time I heard go back to your country was just like this on a playground in Cincinnati when I was five or six by a white woman who was walking by. The words confused me at the time, but the anger and disdain were unmistakable. I will never forget it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, that quote from the mother in the article is so powerful, just thinking about ancestors living, you know, through you, through your expression of self and the way you present yourself to the world. And I kind of want to go back to, because I think part of the story is about the importance of being able to express who you are, mm -hmm. self-expression, identity, cultural heritage. Like that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is just how punitive the rules are to begin with. And how they're rooted in something, again, going back to the importance of understanding history, they're rooted in an anti-Black project that is hard to see when you kind of explain it away as like, well, that's just the school rules. 
you know, they just want to have everybody kind of fit a certain standard. It's just so there's no distractions. This is usually like some of the explanation around. Yeah, I think the superintendent said like, this has been the school dress code for like 30 years. So it's like, we're not being racist, quote unquote, we're not being racist. Right. Yes. There's always that knee jerk reaction of like, well, that's not the intent. And therefore what you're saying cannot stand. I think you have to think about what it means when you tell somebody that the way that the hair grows out of their head is not allowed. Like you will be punished for the way that the hair grows out of your head. I mean, just at face value, it feels wrong. It feels unfair. It feels like you're targeting people. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the way black women, understanding these Eurocentric standards, understanding that there would be stakes to wearing their hair natural, that for decades, they use these chemical straighteners in order to fit into these workplaces, in order to garner some level of respect in schools, and that the consequences were not just the chemical burns, the physical discomfort, the hours and hours and hours that were spent on doing their hair. It was also that now we know it causes cancer. There's a story for me that does go beyond even just the cultural piece, which is already so important. MSU, Michigan State, and Duke released these studies. So there's empirical evidence that shows black women with straightened hair are treated more professionally than black women with natural hair. Like empirical evidence that's saying, hey, this is the truth, right? Facts don't lie, right? That's what everyone says. And even Michelle Obama has come out and talked about it. And she was like, I didn't want to wear my hair natural during, you know, Barack's presidency because I didn't want to distract. And the people are saying like, oh, we wouldn't have cared. You literally had a meltdown over Barack's tan suit. So, yeah, I you was would have say, the tan cared. Suit. You know, they would have cared if Michelle had natural hair. And that is something that's like, are we really having this conversation that we're going to treat someone differently by just their natural being? We're really just creating something out of nothing because we just want to somehow control somebody else because for 30 years, we've been having this dress code. So this is what the dress code needs to be today. It's the same going to language. It's like language needs to evolve as we evolve, because if we're not changing dress codes, because now we're having more diverse student groups, we're just losing the game at that point. 100%. And the word you said that is the crux of this story is control, because that is what this is. It's a story about control. And it's about trying to force people into a white dominant standard. And we can talk about whether that's intentional or not. I don't think the intent actually matters right here because it's really about the impact. And if you're going to set these rules, maybe they're rules that were historically forged when the school was predominantly white, maybe it was even pre-integration, and then you're going to maintain them. And it's the difference between a boy who just has to go get a buzz cut and a boy who has to fundamentally change who he is, give up his sense of self, his sense of humanity and dignity in this world. I mean, the case where they cut off that young boy's um, hair Mm -hmm. at the wrestling match, that one brought me to tears. I remember just thinking about the level of disrespect that was embedded in that expectation. And I just think So much of it is like we can't actually understand. If we look at these as like individual cases, it's easy to just kind of, you know, pass them off and say like, well, that was just that one school. But this is like a really wide ranging story. It takes place through dress codes, you know, through hair standards, through beauty standards, and also through just other modes of presentation, the way you talk, the idea that you should speak in a particular way, how we define quote unquote professionalism. All of these ways that we try to force non-white people into a standard that 
does not reflect them and their humanity and their heritage and their history. Again, it's like the pronoun story where it doesn't take anything away from us to just expand, to make it a more inclusive space that isn't taking anything away from those who came before. And to that point of control, it's telling the next generation of what they should believe rather than actually having those conversations. Because I remember in high school, like girls couldn't wear anything like slightly revealing because it would distract the boys. Like what? (laughs) So like I wasn't distracted, but then as they were telling me I should be distracted, I'm like, wait, should I be distracted? And as a white male, like all of these things, these rules all fit me, you know, like I'm going through this fine. I'm not worrying about any of these things, but it does affect my friends. It does affect my loved ones. It does affect family members. It's not affecting me, but I'm seeing how it is affecting other people. And as a human, I have the empathy to realize like, oh yeah, it's affecting the people I love. So it's probably affecting people they love just because they're not affecting you doesn't mean they're not affecting other individuals. And that's where that closed mindedness really starts to impact how we create policy, how we create law, how we create dress code, how we create all these things that, all right, we're looking at this one group of people and we're going to make all the laws based off of those group of people. But then we forget about everyone else in the dichotomy of our society. And it's like, you know, you could even think of it in an instrumental way where it's it's good for business to have more inclusive policies. And for me, that's always kind of a more cringe way to approach things. Like I prefer <laughs> to think of it as, as, you know, it's better for humans. Therefore, it should just be the case that we all kind of sign on. But, you know, if the human piece isn't enough for you, there are all the studies in business studies that show mm-hmm. like it actually is better for business. It's better for profits. Like you will retain your employees, you will create a better work culture, people will be more productive. All of these things are true as well. Well, that's even, I mean, going back to kind of as a gamer, I've been playing this game, Baldur's Gate 3. It's like a D&D kind of experience game. But a lot of the characters are gay, bisexual, trans, you know, but it's not a big thing. They didn't come out, the studio, Larry and I think it's the studio, they didn't come out and be like, we got gay characters, we got trans characters, buy our game. (laughs) It was done authentically, and each of those characters are complex. You know, I had a good conversation with Noah Kazi a long time ago, but he talked about, like, being gay is, like, the fourth thing on, like, if I was to tell people who I was, that would be, like, the fourth thing. Like, there's so many more complex, you know, things around this, and that's why I really like what Baldur's Gate did, is, like, it wasn't about the characters. It was about just make, or it was about the characters, it was about making the characters good characters. We're not forcing that into somebody. We're not forcing that into a mold. We're just letting life be life. And I think a lot of people see that when it comes to allyship, especially around like Pride Month or, you know, Black History Month or Martin Luther King Day. It's like, okay, you're putting up, you know, a rainbow flag in your Facebook profile photo, but you're also being funded by, you know, countries that hate gay people. Like those two things aren't connecting. And at the end of the day, all you really care about is making those sales and selling those things. You don't actually care about what you're putting out there to the world. It's once again, it's slimy as hell. It sure is. I mean, in the wake of the racial uprisings after George Floyd was killed. I mean, I'm sure you remember all of like the statements that came out from every corporation, corporations that were not paying their employees a living wage, but they were like, we believe Black Lives Matter and we believe in racial justice. And it's like, but do you? Because you don't reflect that in your practices. But look, like I think two things can be true. So I think that those statements, even if they're performative, can have some symbolic value because Mm -hmm. I do think they reflect a kind of cultural commitment to the cause, whether or not they actually back it up. But then I also do think you're right that they 
should be held to task for actually following through and walking the walk. So it's not just about pointing out their hypocrisy. It's also about saying, but what are you going to do about it? And making sure that they follow through because it was too easy for like, once the pandemic had kind of faded into oblivion, we could talk about like the revisionist memory of the pandemic too. But once it had faded and, you know, the racial uprisings had faded and actually a lot of the kind of reactionary backlash had come about, you notice the corporations weren't saying anything anymore because it had kind of fallen out of public favor again. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's like the both and where I think, you know, allyship is about saying the right things, you know, when you can and and expressing them publicly. But it is also much more. The piece that really matters is what you're doing on the day to day in your own life. And it's a practice. Like it's not you do one thing and you're done. I think that's been a real lesson for me is like, I'm constantly learning because things are constantly changing. I'm always checking myself and my students check me too. Like they will let me know if I, you know, used a wrong word or I missed the context on something or if I just, you know, something just didn't land, they will let me know because I create that space for them. Yeah. I think what you said about it's a good start, like even, you know, posting a black square on Instagram or having a hashtag or, you know, sticker on your vehicle, like that's a good start. But you also have to realize like you have to continue, like Going back to Martin Luther King Jr., he talked about the great stumbling block for the Negro wasn't the KKK, wasn't the white city councils, but it was the moderate white American who just wants to sit by and say, well, at least I'm not racist. (laughs) You know, at least I'm not, you know, wearing a pointy hood. You know, you have to understand that individuals are hurting and are hurting in our country, whether it be race, whether it be religion, whether it be sexuality, whether it be the ability to afford, you know, basic things like a roof over their head, food on their table, and take the action. Like you don't need to go out and be, I know Mother Teresa now is like, as we've heard more about who she is, maybe not the best example, but you don't need to go out there and save the world. But you do have to start making those, even if they're just small baby steps moving forward. You can't just say, well, I have a hashtag on my Instagram, so I'm good. Once again, I think what you said was perfect. That's a good start. But like, what are you doing next? Yeah. Because I think whatever kind of political stance you take, I would like to think that everybody believes in every human's capacity and right to just be. And that's when we're talking about the pronouns or we're talking about, you know, the Crown Act and, you know, the hairstyles that are allowed in certain spaces. It's about the right to just be, to be fully yourself, to not feel like you are in harm's way because of it. And I think once you recognize that that's what the story really is, it's a Mm -hmm. lot easier to hear past all the noise. When how do we like I know kind of how do we start having those conversations, those active conversations with family, friends, coworkers, colleagues, whatever it may be to talk about the subtleness of discrimination that we're seeing, like, for example, in this dress code, how are we even talking about the story? You know, those MSU and Duke studies I talked about, you know, Michelle's experience in the White House, like. How do we start having those conversations? Because those are conversations that are very tough to have. Yeah, they're incredibly hard. And I've seen so many of them just go left so fast. And I think especially after the heightened tension of the Trump era, and then you get the pandemic on top of it, like those divisions within families, within friend groups, some of them I don't think will ever heal. I have so many examples, you know, even within just sort of an extended friend group of people that just aren't coming back. It's very clear that they, they're long gone. But I do think for those of us that are really committed to the people that we love, you know, who we are going to be sitting at a Thanksgiving table with every year from here on out, I think it is worth 
maybe questioning a lot of the premise of these relationships where we just don't talk about politics or religion, you know, as the common saying goes. I think having the difficult conversations begins with the listening, asking questions without the intention to respond. So asking questions, sitting in the discomfort, hearing things that we don't want to hear. And I say this not for everybody. I actually think if you are in a positionality that's already precarious, that's already experiencing a lot of violence and harm, you are not the one that needs to be having these conversations. I'm talking more about those of us that are in positions of privilege, who have a kind of outsider stance, who can perhaps approach it and and not have to internalize necessarily the messages that are being fed to us if they are particularly harmful or violent. So, yeah, so I think that's one of the keys. And I say this as somebody who's married to a white man. And so I'm always telling him, like, it's most valuable for you to talk to your people. Mm-hmm. Because if I do it, then it's read as the brown woman in the room. So, I mean, Adam, I'm sure you've had a lot of that. Well, that's even like having the show, like everyone's like, oh, it's just another white man with a podcast. And it's like, I, I mean, like, there's nothing I can do. Like, this is how I was born. This is who I am. But I do see the the ability and the privilege to have these conversations to reach an audience of people that, you know, is in the majority and can make those changes. As Martin Luther King said, the white moderate is what's going to need to listen and hear what's going on to help everyone else, which is kind of like <laughs> a little weird back and forth. But there's so much importance to how we talk about things and how certain individuals talk about things and the power they have. And you have to realize the influence you do have. Getting to the table at Thanksgiving and just listening and hearing what people say, but also coming in informed about what you believe. I think a lot of people, especially this day and age, they do have deep beliefs on what they believe. They're not as educated as I think they should be on it. So it's when you want to try to I don't even know if convince is the right word, but to talk to somebody and potentially change their viewpoint, you at the same time have to know what the heck you're talking about. Because if you're spouting things back, they're going to be like, well, I don't feel like you're confident in what you're saying. So why am I going to believe what you're saying? And then also question, I think, where people are getting their information from and really be like, okay, oh, that's interesting. Like, where did you hear that from? Because a lot of the time people will just take headlines, just take little clips, little take, you know, that one line from that 16, 17 minute speech. And that becomes their uh, belief system, that becomes their philosophy, that becomes their ideals. And until they're challenged on that, but challenged, and obviously I think we need to start challenging people in respectful ways, especially around family, friend, when, friends, loved ones, because that's not going to go well versus okay, what are your beliefs? Let's talk about them. Let's have a conversation. Where are you getting that information from? Is that you know a valid information source? This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm seeing. Like having those conversations that are done in a more respectful way. Like I get it. It doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, that's how you change people's minds by showing that respect to them that you want from them as well. So for me, one of the most disheartening things is all of the studies that have come out that show like you present people with facts and they just dig in deeper. Mm -hmm. So like that the facts themselves won't sway people, but you totally have a point that you marry, you marry like a good knowledge base with respect, with listening, with humility. And I think you could get somewhere. But I also think because I feel like I've run the hamster wheel on these so many times with certain people I feel like I have limited faith in actually changing people's minds. I have much more faith in drawing them in in different ways. And so for me, like maybe it starts with the Thanksgiving conversation, but then maybe you extend it to, you know, when I talk about base building and the importance of building community, I'm thinking about simple ways. Like you have them come and meet you 
and do some sort of community activity with you. You have them engage in these spaces that maybe they hadn't been in before. And it doesn't have to be like a proper Black Lives Matter protest. I don't think I don't think certain folks are gonna make that leap. Like actually most people won't. But it could just be like a, you know, a community space, a community organization. It could be something educational based, community garden. I mean, there are all sorts of different spaces where community is built on the ground with people who wouldn't otherwise come together. And sometimes drawing those folks that are like kind of on the margins, they don't really go one way or another. For me, it's the worst type of person, but potentially the the easiest person to reach is the person who says they're not political. They don't talk about <laughs> politics, right? They drive me crazy because I'm like, your uh-huh. literal life is shaped by politics, but okay. Everyone else cares about politics. Yes, exactly. And I'm like, okay, I get it. You're you're uncomfortable. They make you uncomfortable. So let's draw you into a space that's not about politics explicitly, but that reminds you that you are part of something greater than yourself and that there is so much value and power in coming together with other people. When especially in this space and in the public space that we both find each other in, we kind of have to be the catalyst for people that aren't in that space, you know, <laughs> getting away from the ego of it. But if I, you know, have someone in my life where I'm like, I get where you're coming from, but I think you just have the wrong information and you have the wrong philosophy around this. Not that I know everything, right? I want to make that very clear. But I'm like, hey, you know, you trust me. I've talked about this on this show. Listen to that episode. Every single conversation I've had has been a very respectful conversation. And so listen to this conversation because I think if you trust me enough to be a part of our lives together, you should trust me enough that I'm bringing on guests that they're saying good things. They're saying things that matter. And that's like a, has been a good conduit for me is like, well, listen to this episode I had talking about that. And maybe this will change your mind, or maybe that'll just be the catalyst to start this conversation. I love that. Yeah. And I think that also makes me think that sometimes at the core of a person's like oppositional stance, a stance that's rooted in like disinformation, all this, a lot of times it's just rooted in fear and it's fear that's intentionally created politically because you make people scared and then they really are debilitated and all they can do is follow the leader. So I think if you can help to quell that fear, if you can listen to their actual concerns where they lie, and oftentimes they lie in things that we can all relate to, like the safety of their family, of being able to practice a particular religion in this country, of living a particular way of life. When you can actually hear those fears on a deeper human level, it's a lot easier to connect to them. And then to kind of like talk them off the ledge a little bit. Well, yeah, because no one likes to be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But like to really address the root causes of a lot of our issues, it means we have to address those things that are making us uncomfortable. And to make that change, you know, we have to change our current comfort to make room for others to be comfortable. I can give up my ability to be comfortable, but I don't have to give it all up. That's what a lot of people that are afraid to have these conversations are like, well, if this happens, then... I'm just going to be very uncomfortable. It's like, you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable, which is these individuals have been uncomfortable their whole lives, you know? So we're sharing the, we're balancing the scales a little bit here, but you don't have to give away everything. And I think that's how we need to reframe those conversations on, it's okay to, you know, do those small steps to change a little bit. You don't have to give away everything right away. I think that's where the fear comes from because they think that uncomfortableness means nothing when really it's just, it's just a small little sliver. That's all people are asking for. That's it right there. I'm like, just tell them that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hi, everyone. It's Haji Azdiha. I just wanted to send you all my appreciation for listening to Water Cooler Talk, the place where we're laughing and learning and finding ways to connect with one another. So here's to another great year with Adam and friends. Frank, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? I am, yes. This is from CBS, CBS News World, written by the Associated Press. March 17th, 2023, Mexico's president blames U.S. fentanyl crisis on, quote, lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, capped a week of provocative statements about the fentanyl overdose crisis by blaming U.S. families for not hugging their kids enough. Developed for pain management, fentanyl is up to 100 times stronger than morphine and has seen its potency result in over 70,000 overdose deaths per year in the United States since 2018. Painkiller, known as fentanyl, is responsible for one of the deadliest drug crises in the United Factor States. In today's overdoses the is fentanyl. Culprits, fentanyl. Lopez Obrador has repeatedly said that Mexico's close-knit family values are what have saved it from the wave of fentanyl overdoses. He states... There is a lot of disintegration in families. There is a lot of individualism. There is a lack of love, of brotherhood, of hugs, of affection, of attention to the youngsters. That's why they should be allocating funds to address the causes. Experts say Mexican cartels make so much more money from the U.S. market than their own home market that they see no need to sell fentanyl in those areas. Cartels more frequently sell methamphetamines in Mexico, where the drug is more popular to help its consumer work harder. In addition, Lopez Obrador called anti-drug policies in the U.S. a failure, proposing a ban on the use of fentanyl in medicine for both countries. Even though little of the illegal supply comes from hospitals, most illegal fentanyl is made by cartels in clandestine Mexican labs and pressed into counterfeit pills made to look like other medications. President Lopez Obrador had previously denied that Mexico produces fentanyl, most notably one day after soldiers found more than 1.83 million fentanyl pills in the border city of Tijuana. Weeks before that raid, Mexican soldiers seized nearly 630,000 fentanyl pills in Culiacan, the capital of the northern state of Sinola. Uh, Sinola happens to be home to the drug cartel of the same name, and along with the Jalisco cartel, are actually the two main catalysts behind the influx of fentanyl into the U.S. So Frank, as an advocate of the integration of mind and body, uh, you know, this radical difference from Cartesian approach, as you've mentioned many times in other discussions. How have you noticed the improvement in oneself and yourself in doing so, you know, this slowing down and listening to yourself, for example? And with that in mind, how do you view the president's beliefs that this lack of oxytocin transfer, you know, that can be passed along, for example, via a hug, could contribute to a lesser sense of well-being and happiness. Well, that was a mouthful of a there's question. A lot to be, <laughs> there's a lot to be said about the social environment in the U.S. and how we treat one another. And we could start anywhere, but I, let me start uh, from massage school. This is another one of my things. I went to massage school years ago. And in that environment, there was a lot of talk about low-touch societies and high-touch societies. And there's plenty of evidence to show that, that there are big differences, various cultures, people tend to touch one another more. And in the U.S., we do have what would be called a low-touch society. We also have this, this epidemic of individualism and narcissism. So the comments from the Mexican president 
kind of ring true. I, I, I was going to say the same thing. I was like, there's some truth to what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but a lot of people would say, well, that's a cartoon. And, you know, he's just poking fun at the Americans and that kind of thing. But no, there, there is some truth value there. And we do live in a state that um, is very fear inducing for a lot of people. And we're not doing a very good job of taking care of one another. There's, there's a lot to be said about attachment and failures of attachment. This is a, a common theme in the world of psychology. People talk about secure and insecure attachment of young people to their parents. And that's a real problem for a lot of families now. So we're in a lot of trouble socially. And we can see that in the, the amount of stress, anxiety, fear, and especially the amount of polarization in modern politics. Mm-hmm. That polarization is not just a simple disagreement between parties anymore, but it's just a fear and hatred of the other side. So we have to now clamp down our, our listening because we're so terrified of what's happening on the other side of the aisle. So we're in a real, real tough state. We are, and whether the pandemic hurt or maybe didn't cause any impact of it. I think it did cause quite a big of an impact. But as you're saying, we've separated from ourselves and we separated from one another. And this, you know, humanity is based around community. That's how we've gotten to this point. That's how we build skyscrapers that go to the sky. That's how we've reached the moon as community, this building together. And I'll just say within my lifetime, there's been this disconnect between this idea of what is community and what isn't community. And we find that, yes, we're having more of these individualism type mindsets where I can do it by myself. And we're seeing a lot of these issues by separating from these communities. And one of them, for example, is, you know, the opioid crisis in America and this disconnection between, you know, how we feel about ourselves, you know, this connection between the mind and the body kind of going into that Cartesian approach was the mind and the body. But now we need to look at it as the mind and the body as one instead of these two separate entities. And I know sometimes they include God as that third entity. But going back to what we need to focus on now is this connection of mind and body togetherness. You know, I know you've talked about the importance of oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And biologically, there's a reason this drug is released into our system when we have these physical contact with each other because it's important to our, our survival as humans. So we need hugs. Yeah, as much as, you know, <laughs> the Mexican president has said some very interesting comments towards the US when it comes to uh, the opioid crisis, the fact that he says that we lack these things is it rings very much true because when you look at, you know, Mexican families he mentions the article, but just any Spanish speaking countries, there's a lot of love in those families, you know, right, kids stay right. with the parents. You see this a lot in eastern cultures too. Kids stay with the parents and then they help them, you know, instead of here in the US where it's like, well, mom and dad are going in the home. See ya. <laughs> Right. Well, I've got a story related to that because on one of my trips to Africa, I was staying at a hotel. I was in the lobby and just hanging out, waiting for whatever's going to happen the next day. And one of the locals, I was like the only white guy in that area. And one of the locals picked me out and started chatting me up and asking me why I was there, what I was doing. And He didn't see that many white people. And so I told him, well, I'm here. I'm working on a book and I'm doing some research. And he said, well, where's your family? And I said, well, they're back home in America. 
And he couldn't understand it. I had to tell him like three times. He just couldn't understand that I would go all the way across the world to go to a different country and not bring my people with me. <laughs> and I'll never forget that moment because that's how that's how important community is to these people. No shit, no kidding, Frank. I, yeah. I went to South Africa to deal with human wildlife conflict. And I had some of those same conversations with mm. the locals there that were a part of what we were doing. It's like, I can't remember. I was like in maybe 1920 at the time. And they're like, where is the rest of your family? You're just doing this by yourself. And I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, like, yeah, you know, yeah. as Americans, we don't even think about it, but so yeah, it's, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. Isn't that something? Yeah. Well, what I've done recently is I've come up with a, a little diagram of the human body. Mm -hmm. I put that at the center and there's three circles around it. And these are the three circles of life support. The first circle is habitat because you got to have your air, your water, your food, all of that comes from habitat. So that keeps you alive. The second circle of life support is tribe community. That's also a life sustaining system. And we are hyper social animals. We totally depend on that circle of life support. If it breaks down, if it becomes dysfunctional, that's reflected in our bodies. There's no question about that at all. And then the third circle of life support is um, what you might say, story, narrative that's embedded in culture. Mm -hmm. That is also a life-supported system. And the problem with the modern world is that we have dysfunctional relationships at all three of those levels. So it's a massively comp complex problem. Well, yeah, and it, it leads to the separation. This um, I just watched uh, some documentaries about the Sackler family and their deals with Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the opioid crisis. And I found it very interesting that they started in rural mining towns on the East Coast. It was a lot of convincing these, you know, small town doctors. I know there's a documentary series called Dope, I believe, or Sickness or something with Michael Keaton, and he plays one of these small town doctors. The title of that TV miniseries starring Michael Keaton is called Dope Sick. But it was right. this company buying the trust of these doctors so they could sell something to their patients. And that is such a breakdown in, you know, that trust and that connection between one another, because here you are as a patient of this small town doctor that probably birthed you. That's, you know, how a lot of these small town doctors in yeah, the U.S. Yeah. work. And now they're giving you this thing that's saying it's completely safe. Do it. You get addicted and then you feel disconnected. You were brought in by someone you very much trust kind of similar to what cults do. You know, they bring you in, they say a lot of great things, and then they disconnect you. Mm -hmm. It's just going to keep growing if we continue to have these disconnections between one another where I have a problem, but I feel like I can't talk to you about that problem because we've lost this quote-unquote touch. Right. And, you know, when I think about human relationships and what people need from one another, I came up with my little favorite list. And it's, it's five things on the list. People need to be seen. They need to be, feel heard. They need to feel felt. They need to feel understood and respected. All five of those go into having a healthy human relationship. And the problem in the modern world is that now we're moving so fast that those fundamentals get glossed over. You go to see your doctor, you may walk out of the room and you may not feel 
felt, heard, seen, understood, or respected mm -hmm. because yep. it's, the whole experience takes place at light speed. And so now you're walking out, out of the door, you feel processed, you feel manipulated, <laughs> you don't feel felt. I'm just another number. Yeah, exactly. And so the pace of the modern world is part of the problem, but the money is also part of the problem too. The interesting study I read about here was from a woman named Kathleen Vo, and I think University of Minnesota, I believe she, and she was in the business. She was in the business school, and what she did was these uh, money priming experiments. So she brought people into the laboratory and showed them videos, and of course she had a control group that watched a neutral video, but the other group watched a video with a lot of content about money and a lot of money priming about finance and profit and loss and these kinds of things. And this went on for some period of time. And then she tested the two groups to see what their social responses were. And not surprisingly, those who watched the Money Prime in videos were more selfish, more self-oriented, more narcissistic. And it makes perfect sense. But then you think about the modern world and how thoroughly money primed we are in each day it's not surprising to see the amount of selfishness that we that we display so i mean this is the perfect segue it's like we know what we're doing here frank uh but speaking to that exactly what you're just talking about can you explain this concept of the epidemic of loneliness and you know further expand upon your thoughts in your statement this is your quote when you take away the social and cultural support systems that we've enjoyed in a previous age, it's no surprise that there's an increase in addiction. Right. And this is something that um, that was touched on by a mentor of mine, Bruce Alexander, and he was a, uh, a psychologist working in the realm of addiction. And he looked at, this was some years ago, back in the 1970s, I believe, and he looked at the current studies of addiction done on rodents, non-human animals who were kept in cages, isolated from one another. Rodents are social animals. This is not normal. This is not natural. And then they're presented with the so-called addictive substance. Yeah. And back then it was cocaine or heroin, morphine, that kind of thing. And of course, all these animals become addicted because they're living in an alien environment. Mm -hmm. So Bruce Alexander looks at this and says, well, this is not normal. This is not natural. You can't you can't trust these results. So what he did in his laboratory was built what he called Rat Park. And this has since become famous. It, it's a big plywood enclosure that had everything that a rat would ever need, including running wheels and places to hide and other rats to play with. Sort of a rat utopia, you might say. And then he introduces the so-called addictive substances and the rats did not become addicted. Okay, yeah, I've heard of the study, yeah. Yeah, and it's just fascinating because context is so important. Social setting is so important on the kind of behavior that comes out of the organism. So that, that really should have changed our view and made us more sensitive to the outside world. Yeah. And it, it hasn't had the influence that, that we hoped it would have. But Rat Park, we need to be talking about Rat Park. Because humans are, are no different. Yeah, we need to we need to allow humans to be humans and to enjoy things. And I, I feel like we've learned and are still learning so much post pandemic. And I feel like there was a collective happiness in a horrible time when people were, I mean, making sourdough starters and painting and 
being artistic and creative and not having to be grinded down by the overt productivity of the job force nowadays. Yeah, we've become uh, such an achievement culture now that um, I mean, kids are encouraged to start working on their resumes when they're in grade school. You know? Yeah, and I know now there's a, a, a few states that are passing these laws to get younger and younger kids into the workforce. And- into the workforce, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, and that also ties into some of the uh, some of the research that's been done on animal play behavior. And we now know that it's beyond question that all young mammals have this driving need to play, and if they are prevented from playing, that there are serious consequences down the line. Mm-hmm. They've actually done this with rodents. You could take rodents in cages, you could prevent them from playing, and then later on you reintroduce them to society, as it were, and they they don't function very well at all. So play is not frivolous. Play is not a luxury item. Play is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, and I heard you talking about play and, you know, obviously look more into it. And yeah, it's, you know, it's essential for developing, you know, a host of social, physical, and psychological skills. You know, I, I even, in my time in South America or South Africa, we studied lions. And one of the things you see among or from male lion to a cub lion is the cub will say, bite the male lion. And the male lion will act like he just got killed and stabbed yeah. and, you know, Shakespeare type death. <laughs> really, it didn't hurt, you know, this male lion whatsoever. But it was an important connection in that cub's life to say, hey, here's someone I trust. I'm learning good things through play, which is fun. Um, you know, when we develop in positive ways, we become positive people. You know, I used to do dog training and there's the debate between negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. And I've always seen leaps and bounds, better right. results from positive reinforcement saying, you know, you're doing something, here's a treat, good job, rather than you pee on the carpet, I'm going to put your nose in it. Oh, yeah, there, there's yeah. going to be more anxiety with that dog. There's going to be more stress. And, you know, as we talked about, that expands out to, you know, other animals and obviously humans as well. Right. One of my favorite little bits of advice I tell people is to treat people like animals. And some people find that to be disturbing when I talk that <laughs> way. But uh, no, it, it's absolutely true because everybody's got an autonomic nervous system. Every mammal has an autonomic nervous system. And for all these animals, human or not, the fundamental question of life is, is my world friendly? What, whatever answer you come up with is going to dictate the activity of your autonomic nervous system, this ancient system in your body. So we have to help people to perceive the world to be friendly. That's really important. I mean, Frank, as someone who's worked with animals my entire life, pretty much, and even now, you know, I have some squirrels out here playing. It's like, man, I wish people were more like animals. I wish it was a lot more simple. <laughs> I wish we didn't have to deal with all the bullshit of humanity. But we, we got lucky to be, you know, the humans and to be on this earth at this time. But, you know, I think we're all starting to see that it needs to be better and it can be better. Yeah. Yeah, we can uh, we could take a lot better care of one another. And kind of to wrap up this story in maybe more of a philosophical way, do you believe we are unhappy in our bodies? A lot of us are. There's no question about that. If you look at the attitudes that people bring to their bodies nowadays, they range from the completely apathetic, where people don't enjoy their bodies very much, and these people typically lack any kind of physical vitality 
physical courage. They just have declared <laughs> their apathy a long time ago, and then they suffer the consequences all the way to the other end where the relationship is adversarial. And this is what we see in a lot of athletics where people just punish their bodies in the gym. And this is kind of a boot camp mentality where the only way I can get in shape, the only way I can be um, healthy down the road is to really punish my body. Mm -hmm. So between those two extremes, it's hard to find people with a balanced approach now. And we, we don't see it very much. Sports are all well and good, but even sports kind of miss the point, I think. Sports are movement specialties, and movement specialties are, they can be exciting, they can be fun, they can be worthwhile, they're good life lessons there a lot of times, but they're also kind of beside the point. And the point is to live as a healthy human animal, and that's what I'm trying to do, and that's what I encourage my students to do as well. You know, get to the point. Can you run? Can you walk? Can you jump? Can you play? Can you do basic moves and enjoy them? You know, once you get that established, then you can branch out and do all the sports. Mm -hmm. Sure, that's great. And I, I don't know if you're a football fan at all, but I know over in Seattle, you there's a wide receiver, DK Metcalf, who is the epitome of greek god type body and obviously he's very fit but yeah he's healthy but that's not an achievable healthy and sometimes you have to kind of step back and say all right yes this is to you know a potential extreme this person is genetically gifted they spend millions and millions of dollars i think the creator of it's always sunny when he talked about getting ripped for roles he's like you know i i'm surrounded by trainers and health experts and people are making me food and it's easy for me to get ripped when you have millions of dollars to get ripped. Right. But I think people have to start looking at, you know, the the health of their body. It doesn't need to be, like you said, these extremes. And, you know, obviously if we're seeing people get involved in these uh, fentanyl issues and Oxycontin and these opioids and any other drugs, you know, a lot of those people are taking I won't say all those people, but vast majority of those people are taking these drugs because there's something about their body that they're unhappy with, whether it be pain in the case of, say, fentanyl. Right. And they have to shape their body in a particular way to feel approval from society. And mm -hmm. so the, the psychological roots of that go much deeper. I would also point to a, a famous case, this bodybuilder named Ronnie Coleman, and he was <laughs> you might say big in that world <laughs> for a long time, you know, 300 pounds of sculpted muscle, a fantastic physique, just staggering to look at. And he punished his body so badly that he had to have numerous back surgeries and now he can't even walk. Mm -hmm. And he's on the, on the juice, on the pain meds all the time now. So his, his career is over and his career as a healthy human animal is over. He's kind of emblematic of what we do to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it really all boils down to this collective union of humanity and wanting to be a part of a group and not always feeling comfortable trying to fit into these groups. And it doesn't always give us the best health for ourselves because we're changing who we are at our spiritual level, it sometimes feel mm -hmm. like to fit into a community because we know as humans, we have to be a part of this community and we're so afraid of being alone. I mean, you look at any dating apps and some of the crazy messages people send because they're like, I don't want to be alone. So I'm just going to throw some crazy shit at the wall and hope it sticks. Right, right. Well, that reminds me of this um, spiritual teacher 
that lives in Yosemite Valley. And this guy was, he's lived in Yosemite for his whole life, basically. He's a climber, a fantastic climber. And he, he tells a little story about how sometimes people come to him and they say, I really want to be somebody. And his, his retort to that, he says, you already are somebody. Look at your body. Look how amazing the human body is. You already inhabit that. And he, he makes a good point there. We're falling in love with all the wrong stuff. We fall in love with our smartphones and we're in awe of that technology. But the body is a million times more amazing and interesting than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know you talk a lot about this concept of slowing down. I mean, I even have notes here, you know, on my desktop to slow down because, I mean, conversations like these are really important. I've been really enjoying this conversation. And, you know, sometimes you kind of just are like, all right, what's on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? When really, you slow it down a little bit and enjoy where you are at now. I believe you find a much happier life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are amazing animals. And let's inhabit that idea for a while. <laughs> I like it. Hi there. This is Frank Ferencic. And I'd just like to say thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed the experience and sharing some of the ideas and stories. I'd just like to say Take care of your habitat, take care of the people around you, and hope you enjoy 2024. Cheers. But this first story is from Coda, story written by Isabel Cockrell, February 23rd, 2023. Plans for a more walkable, bikeable Oxford anger conspiracy theorists. Sometimes two extremist political factions, each with their own set of conspiracy mythologies, meet at the picket line and create a hybrid Frankenstein's monster of a fringe group. We saw it happen when the Reichsenberger conspiracy theorists who believed Germany should go back to the monarchy of the 1870s met up with the anti-vaccine adherents during their campaign against the COVID lockdown. And it was a sort of a conspiracy theorist meet-cute. This time, the two extremist lovebirds were the Anti-Bike Brigade and the QAnon New World Order Anti-Vaccine Adherents. It would almost be heartwarming if it wasn't so disturbing. The anti-bike movement is furious about the transformation of European cities into green, low-emission zones where they can't drive their cars. Meanwhile, the QAnon types are convinced that the world is in the midst of a great reset in which we would be permanently confined to our homes. So when the historic British city of Oxford introduced a new plan to make the center of town more walkable and bikeable, both groups kicked off. The city council proposed creating more 15-minute neighborhoods, an urban planning term that aims to develop cityscapes where everything you need is a quarter-hour walk away and where cars become redundant for shorter journeys. But the two groups saw the plan as a dystopian ploy to keep us all locked inside. James Stafford, 37, a British campaigner for bike infrastructure, posted a video on his TikTok about the protest. This is what 15-minute city protesters in Oxford are protesting against, he said, posting idyllic videos of walking cityscapes. In another video, James left the caption, this is what they want, over nightmares footage of traffic gridlock and huge Walmart parking lots. Stafford said he watched as the anti-15-minute city campaign started a simple opposition to low-traffic neighborhoods and morphed into people talking about Nazi ghettos and open prisons. A truly bizarre reaction to one city council's plan to make buses run faster and travel feel safer. So just to, for listeners and kind of people that are reading this article and even kind of the the, the writer of this article herself, to be clear and avoiding confusion, uh, as seems to be the case with this story, Oxford City Council approved a 20-year urban development plan last year to create 15-minute cities. However, these uh, the demonstrators, there's about 2,000 of them, 
seem to have confused that plan with a recent plan from the Oxfordshire County Council to reduce through traffic within the city by proposing a low-traffic neighborhood, or LTN, which would divide the city into zones that can't be crossed by car unless you have an exemption passes, which would be given to residents of the city. So as someone who spends much of your time kind of discussing these ideas, walkable cities, what did you find important in how you share your information and connect with others on your message? So from my understanding, first of all, the, the, the whole idea of 15-minute cities came from a TED Talk from Professor Carlos Moreno in 2016. And I, I don't think he coined the idea, maybe the term. Uh, when I first got interested in walking, it's at least 10 years ago, I was living in this rural area where I had to drive absolutely everywhere. Like there was, there was nowhere I could could walk at all. Um, and I had small children. And so it was just every day was a nightmare. Um, and I remember starting to think like, what, you know, what I really like, and what I think everybody should have a right to is to be able to get to a certain group of services or needs yep. within, say, a 10 minute walk. I, I didn't think 15 minutes, but you know, 10 minute. And it was like, I think my list was playground, school, post office, milk, and a coffee shop, like as a bonus, you know, <laughs> and a library, you know, it's just this, this small list of what would really make your life feel good if you could walk there safely and easily. Mm -hmm. So people know, from my understanding, the original uh, conspiracy theory that was formed around that 15 minute cities idea came from Jordan Peterson, which I, I have to say, I just read in someone's um, sub stack a while back. So I don't know if he was the first person who came out and said that's a conspiracy theory, but um I like to mention it because the writer called him Canada's weepiest man. And I, it's I just, just, <laughs> a little true, a little truth to that. I really appreciated that. <laughs> so it, it, it's interesting. You're coming at the topic of walking from actually the opposite end of where most people ask me about it. This this is tends to be the end point of like, what can walking give us? What can walkability give us? How does it make our lives Richer. From a research standpoint, there's a ton of research about walkable communities and social capital or neighborliness. Eric Kleinenberg, who's a professor at Columbia, I might be. Eric is currently a professor at New York University, but has written for Columbia University Press. Um, misremembering that, but he's a sociology professor, I think. And he originally studied in the mid-1990s this heat wave in Chicago, where which neighborhoods had had the most deaths, you know, the most suffering. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing he found was it wasn't based on wealth. It was based on this idea of social capital, of neighborliness. So two neighboring neighborhoods had basically the same socioeconomic status, and one had a much higher death rate in the heat wave than the other. And what he found was that the infrastructure was very different. So Auburn, Gresham, I think, was the neighborhood that had done much better. And there you still had things like, you know, public parks, sidewalks, people knew each other, mm -hmm. um, they knew whom to check up on. So the idea of walking and walkability connected to how resilient your community is, is has actually been researched and, and shown for quite a long time. How I personally connect with people uh, around this idea has become much more complicated over the years. Um, you know, I did write a book about it, and I'm really grateful when people read it and they write me and they tell me that they've been going for more walks. But it, it more and more every year, I it, it's demonstrated to me how tied Americans and Canadians, you know, North Americans in general, are to our cars and how big a part of people's identity that is. Um, I was on the War on Cars podcast last year, I think, 
And uh, one of the things I said to them, which I've been saying a lot, is that, you know, part of part of our barrier here to creating a walkable world is that when people think about going somewhere, they don't think about themselves as using their car. They think of themselves as their car. So when you're trying to change the way parking is done to make you know, it's safer for kids to walk and bike to school. Or if you're trying to change intersections, people object strongly, not because they hate walking so much, but because they identify with their cars and they think that wherever they want to go, their car should be able to go. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really, really difficult. And you get this all across the political spectrum. You know, it's not... I think the conspiracy theory tends to be a little <laughs> more right wing, uh, at least the way it's manifested. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's I think that's very fair to say this is right extremist viewpoint that I mean, especially during COVID, these lockdowns that the government's going to lock us down, that the government's trying to control where and when we go. And I mean, obviously, there are examples. I mean, what happened in China, China did have very severe lockdowns. Mm -hmm. But that's China. That's a different demographic. That's a different culture. That's a different government. Here in the US, it's, it's much different. It's much more open. It's much more free. And could that happen? I mean, yeah, sure, maybe. I'm not going to say no. But looking at how we view our government, how we view our people, yeah, sometimes it's a little, you know, screwed up. But we allow that freedom to make your own choice and to, you know, if you want to get, for example, if you want to get a vaccine, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. Obviously, there are risks if you don't, but you still have that choice. And I think a lot of countries that these conspiracy theorists are trying to compare to didn't have that choice. I mean, comparing it to the Nazi ghettos is fucking insane. Like, that's so far out there. That's like, yeah, sure, you know, these World War II ghettos existed, but yeah. <laughs> having a 15-minute walkable city or having these low-traffic neighborhoods are not precursors to that. Yeah. And I think that's where the identity thing comes in. Um, I think a lot about identity and how much um, how much it determines how people think, how they'll vote, what they hear about. Um, I, I think that's true of all of us. I said to a friend just the other day, you know, I I'm not sure if there's anything people will fight for harder than to protect their sense of identity. Um, and in North America, unfortunately, cars have really, <laughs> really saturated us. You know, I, I do think in, in Europe, um, lockdowns were also more severe. My husband's from England mm -hmm. and my mother-in-law, you know, is still there in Nottingham in England, which is a wonderfully walkable city, by the way, with great public transportation. And, and I remember reading some essays out of Spain and Italy and it, you know, I can understand this sense of enforced confinement that maybe didn't feel necessary. It's harder for me to comment on that, partly because I do live in a small town in Montana. You know, it, most of my writing friends, well, my writing group, I guess, um, like some one of them's in New York City, and she lives in a 500-square-foot apartment with a family of five. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and getting outside and being able to go for walks and having to share space with people is an entirely different proposition for her than it is for me, who lives in a town of 7,000-some, surrounded by millions of acres of wilderness, you know, and, and our public spaces weren't closed. Um, our governor at the time was a Democrat, and um, we did go through through lockdown very smartly. You know, our hospitals were, were overwhelmed, and we don't have a lot of them. It is a rural state. Uh, and But I wouldn't say that we necessarily felt that sense of, of confinement. Yeah, like that's one of those things when you can really compare, let's take public transport, for example, when you look at, you know, what's going on in the EU versus, you know, here in the US, obviously, the EU, 
a, a lot of history there. So a lot of these buildings were built before cars became this booming of a thing. But the US was, I mean, we're still young enough to where a lot of our culture, a lot of our city was built around the cars. I mean, they used to have uh, these traveling car shows, Motoramas, where, you know, all these big auto industry makers would go around and say, this is the future. This is what you need to do. If you want to traverse across the US, you need a car to do so. Mm-hmm. And that has led to very poor um, investment of our public transport. I mean, I think Biden's infrastructure bill had like 20 billion set aside for public transport. But like even like this is an interesting fact that I found the EU spends $1.1 trillion, which is made up of 27 member states uh, on public transport a year where the US spends 250 billion. Obviously, they're roughly the same size in landmass. The EU has uh, 100 million more residents. But the fact that that's almost five times as much money being spent on public transport in the EU, obviously, you look at the EU and you say, wow, they have really good public transport compared to the US where we have a, uh, a light rail here in Minnesota that goes throughout the city. But it's filled with crime. I mean, just this year in general, crime is up 66% which is crazy. It's like, I want to use public transport. I want to move away from using my car. Yeah, you would love to be able to bike to work to, you know, walk to work. But most jobs, uh, I think the average commute in America is about 45 minutes. The average commute to and from work in the US is 55 minutes. But we need to kind of refocus our urban planning to make sure that's viable. And at the current moment, it's not. So that actually gets to the center or the heart, I think, of what we're talking about or what I talk about Mm -hmm. uh, in my book in particular. One of the things that really got me to write a book about walking was um, over and over and over, you hear the same stories. It's like Thoreau and um, Emerson and Darwin and Einstein, and it's all these thinkers, right? Usually men, Um, you know, and here's how they took walks and here's how they saw the world. And I started getting really frustrated because I felt like the conversations and the writing, the literary writing, writing about walking dead-ended, and it excluded, it continues to exclude, I think, so many people, most people. And when I talked to my publisher, I said, you know, I really want to write a book for a single mom who's working two jobs. I want to write a book for you know, someone like my husband, who at the time was commuting uh, almost an hour to work on the New York State Thruway every day. Uh, and comes home and is tired and doesn't want to go for a walk, you know, even if we had had that infrastructure, um, you know, just wants to watch TV. I I wanted to write a book for what I call the every walker. Mm -hmm. So in the process of doing that, what I kept finding was uh, I had to talk about the barriers because those are huge. And it's something that it frustrates me about the literary world in general and publishing, which is that people want to write and read about the the nice things and different ways of looking at the world, but they don't really want to grapple with the messy policy and infrastructure legacies that make it almost impossible for most people to live the way they're recommended. So when I first started writing about walking, what kept striking me was the question of freedom. And because we're talking about, you know, American identity and how you can get places in your car and what your choices are, what I kept running into was, wait a second, if I can't leave my, I lived in upstate New York at the time, if I can't leave my house and get milk or take my kid to a playground or get my mail without getting into a car, strapping my kid in and driving somewhere and assuming I have that ability and 30% on average of uh, driver eligible people in America do not have 
the ability to drive. Uh, How free am I? How free are any of us if everything we need to do or want to do in our lives is absolutely dependent on this industry, the car industry, the oil industry, and on our tax dollars going to support all of the infrastructure that makes that industry possible? And then when you look back into the history of it, you you mentioned at the beginning that you've been kind of deep diving. Have you come across Peter Norton, who wrote Fighting Traffic? I have not, no. Uh, He is, um, he's done so much of the work on the history of cars and roads in America. It's really central to to understanding any of it. Um, And he's a a great guy to talk about this stuff. And he he wrote a book called Fighting Traffic. And it, it really gets into the early history of cars in America. So post World War One, like in the four years afterwards, more people died in car crashes than had died in the actual war. And people hated cars. They did not want cars in their cities. They did not want cars on the roads. Um, there is a fantastic little like six minute video from San Francisco, or I think it's ten minutes, in 1906 that is just a camera mounted on a streetcar, and it's just going down Market Street. I think it was. Um, If you watch that video, what you see is that the road is a free-for-all. It is a public place. It's a public space. There are kids running across it. There are, you know, women with their bustly long dresses. Um, There's cars, there's horses, and nobody is doing that thing that we do when we cross the road where they glance side to side, like, am I safe? Am I Mm -hmm. safe? They're just using the road. To take that away from Americans took an enormous investment and amount of time and money and political capital. The car industry, you know, created think tanks, they invested money. And of course, the think tanks started to create research that supported cars. And then the people who were in those think tanks made their way into government. Stop me if this sounds familiar to some, you know, certain <laughs> ways. <laughs> I mean, if, yeah, if you get into how the the car industry made jaywalking illegal. Yeah. Yes. And and that's exactly, you know, jaywalking was invented by the car industry as part of this huge campaign to shove normal people off of what is a public space and make that exclusive to people who owned and drove cars. And part of the reason is, you know, you can't sell cars if you're not selling the story of freedom that they bring Mm. because sitting in traffic is freaking miserable. It is, it is just, it's horrible. You know, you talk about um, crime on, on public transportation. Well, like 40,000 people die in car crashes in the U.S. every year. And some 6,000 of those are pedestrians and cyclists mm-hmm. that, that dwarfs so many other causes of deaths in this country. But it just, it fascinates me that the car industry was successful over the decades in forcing Americans to adopt their product, which is really expensive to own and to run and for the whole public to invest in, you know, talking about the roads and the parking and the infrastructure. And then somehow we come out the other end of it thinking that that is what we wanted and that that is freedom. And it never was and it never has been and it's not going to be. You know, you, you can't have a community that's for people and for cars, because at some point you have too much traffic. Well, yeah, it's so interesting. Just about that no, no, I, th- I think it's a lot of very good points that you're making. It's so interesting how the marketing of these car industries have ingrained themselves in society. I mean, even from 2021, uh, as far as car lobbying goes, GM spent $9 million, Toyota $6 million, Hyundai $1.2 million. So obviously, these car industries see the importance of making sure 
being a part of America is having a car. It's like, you know, you see those like truck commercials and you're like, you're not a real man. You're not a real American unless you have a truck. <laughs> and it's like, it works. It obviously works because, it works. you know, the amount of cars we see. I mean, the fact that we're continuing to widen roads, widen, widen, widen roads. We're making bigger trucks. We're making bigger cars. We're making, uh, I know you talk in your book about, you know, people not being able to use sidewalks in the same way, uh, you know, especially for people in wheelchairs. And it, it's becoming this, this thing in society where it's like, I understand the U.S. is a big freaking place, man. Like, that's a lot of like my international <laughs> friends are like, oh, I'm going to go to San Francisco. I'm going to go to Las Vegas. I'm going to go to New York. And I'm like, how, how long are you planning to stay? Five days. <laughs> I'm like, no, you can't. Right. You can't do that, you know, because we've built our society around cars, the need for cars. And I like how you talked about like, sure, does cars give us our freedom or do they really confine us to having to use cars, to having to live in car centric cities? Could we get to a point where we have these 15 minute neighborhoods across America uh, or even just being able to go from 60 minute cities to 40 minute cities to 30 minute cities, I think would be a big win. Mm -hmm. But how do you compete with the amount of money that's being put into you know, lobbyists that are saying, no, nah, we shouldn't do that. Let's keep doing this car thing. Let's keep, you know, <laughs> using all this um, fossil fuels to uh, power these cars, all these things that we should be making the switch to this more safer urban development. And we have been, you know, to be fair, urban planning has naturally been moving towards mixed use compared to uh, the early 20th century where we're doing single use. But how long is that going to take to get to a point where people do feel safe walking around their cities and around their neighborhoods without fearing getting run over by a gigantic freaking truck that says, I'm America? Yeah, we have a lot of those, right? <laughs> <laughs> especially during COVID, like the, the number of people who moved to Montana, um, especially the, the Western area in the mountains where I live, it's just mm -hmm. enormous. And they all need to buy a truck, you know, and um, then they put the, these iron cross cow catcher bumper things on the front and you know one of these things is barreling down at you and and i'm like this is this is absurd and they all buy cowboy hats which is really funny because my, my mom grew up on a ranch in eastern montana you know her family were homesteaders mm -hmm. and like nobody wears a cowboy hat they all wear you know caps from the seed company <laughs> it's just it's one of those identity things where it's like okay you cosplay yeah. your own role well do you see i mean these obviously not maybe the 15 minute walkable cities, but the concept of, you know, these walkable cities, walkable neighborhoods where, you know, you have uh, kind of everything you need within like a, a, a walkable space, you know, whether it be hospitals, grocery stores, schools, uh, your work, do you see that as a possibility here in the US? Or is it kind of, you know, a future dream that we really need to start pushing, you know, to get towards? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> You know, it, it feels hopeless a lot of times, mostly because of that identity thing. So I am on the bike and pedestrian committee at the city council in my hometown, um, and I'm on the board of parks. And I have been working on walkability within my town for years. And especially there's this whole issue around the elementary school and the traffic and drop off. That's like this little knot in the middle of a lot of it because the elementary school is on a dead end road. And so people have to come in and 
circle out again to, to get, so it gets really clogged. And one of the things that makes me super pessimistic and has for years is the number of people I know who like identify as progressive and liberal and have all these values and yet really do not see that they should ever have to give up their right to be able to drive their kid to the front door of the school easily without having to wait in a traffic jam and be delayed, you know, until people, uh, I guess I want to say people of privilege who can make that choice, start making that choice, it's going to be harder to see more movement um, in a lot of communities. On the other hand, I follow a lot of um, urban planning and infrastructure and walkability and public transportation people, um, you know, newsletters and podcasts and um, people like Strong Towns, Chuck Marone, who, you know, someone out there's listening is probably familiar with. That kind of work is really inspiring because the places where this is happening are places you don't expect. Chuck Marone talks about, you know, a lot of the work being done in mid-sized cities you've you know, maybe never heard of. Like you need to stop thinking about the really big urban areas and how do you fix them and look at what more independent maybe places are are just choosing to do for various reasons. I went to Denver to research for my book, uh, you know, because in addition to not wanting to talk about Thoreau, whom I mentioned exactly <laughs> once, just to stop anybody writing me and say, hey, have you ever mm-hmm. heard of Thoreau? <laughs> in addition to not wanting to retread that ground, so to speak, um, I wanted to widen the geography. You know, so many books are New York centric. The whole publishing industry is New York centric. And like, I just, it's a big country, as you said. So originally, um, I was writing about Seattle, but the mayor there ended up being pretty unsavory after being very Uh pro-public transport and pro-walkable. And I'm like, I can't include this person. It was was really bad, actually. Um, So I ended up in Denver. And Denver is doing some really interesting things around walking and walkability. Now, they're kind of lucky because they have some legacy infrastructure. When the city was originally designed, um, the original city platters have like – this whole plan of a city of parks that were connected. So I think there is some embedded infrastructure that makes it a little bit more accessible to make it walkable. But the key has been a couple of um, walking advocate groups, just ordinary people who live there and care about their community. Um, One of them is Jonathan Stalls, who had walked across the country for eight months. Um, He just came out with a book last year called Walk, which is really lovely. And as part of his book tour, he is still walking various places around the country. He's just about, about to start on the Oregon coast. People can join him. He started a group called Walk to Connect. And then uh, there's another group called um, Girl Trek, which is national. And it was started by two African-American women who one of them was a teacher. And she was looking at the health statistics of um, African-American women. She used the term African-American in her TED Talk, I think in the US and just found it really depressing. Like she said, I can't look out at these girls that I'm teaching and think about you know what their health prospects are right now. So they started taking girls walking and they extended it to getting black women to walk 30 minutes, five days a week. And these are locally based, locally led. Um, I find Girl Trek probably the most inspiring group in the entire country, maybe, um, on, on almost anything, because a lot of their work is about that personal health, about like respecting yourself and, and working towards your health and, you know, empowerment and community building at the same time. So I walked with a girl truck group in Denver, um, who were just amazing and could have written part of my book for me in like a week because they really got it. When I walked with a group through the parks, um, 
you know, one thing I, I have to say, I, um, <laughs> people don't like it when I say this, but the group that I walked with through the parks was all white. Um, and they were all like retired or near retired, fairly liberal and PR listeners. And when I met them, I was like, okay, these are the people who buy books. Like, you know, <laughs> these are the, probably need to connect with them. And they asked me what I was working on. And I told them and I, I explained what the different aspects of the book were. And I said, social justice. And they said, what does social justice have to do with walking? And I was like speechless. And I spent the next two hours trying to think about how I could get this group of people who think they care about social justice, but see it as an abstract thing that maybe Mm. doesn't connect with their daily lives and the way that their life and their community is built. And then I walk with the girl track group and they, you know, they knew it all already, of course. And so these groups connect with the city council and with the Colorado Department of Transportation, and they take them on these walking audits and they show them where the issues are. And And the thing is that most of these policies are written and passed and enforced by people who don't walk in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. They don't, or, or bike, you know, and, and by the way, when I say walking, I do include wheelchairs also. Um, I try to make that clear at the beginning of the book because that's very important to me. It, it, it is so hard to understand the difficulties in using that as transportation if you aren't experiencing it. Um, and there's a woman, Tamika Butler, who used to, oh, what did she used to run? It was like bike Los Angeles something it was the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition but she just gets really deep into you know as a black woman here is how I experienced trying to get around my city and other cities and other areas the people who are making these policies don't experience the way the world mm-hmm. the way I do for the most part and if they don't take my experience into account then they are going to build this world and the infrastructure and laws, you know, and policing laws um, in ways that exclude my needs and my mm-hmm. experiences. And that's just so important. And and so there are all these groups all over the country, actually, who are working on these things locally. And and that's why, you know, in my sub stack, I, um, I really try to share like podcasts and articles and, and things that that focus on what people are doing in places that are unexpected. Because I think that's where people find hope and they find inspiration and they find engagement. You know, you get involved with your local community. You don't go to Boston or San Francisco um, to figure out what you're doing wrong or what you need to do right. You get to know your local community and its needs. And then you can start working on these things. And it's going to look different everywhere. You know, the, yes, it's yep. not... You know, you talked about um, the green line. Is, is the green line in um, the Twin Cities? Uh, the, yep, like, the green line. Uh, the Yep. Because I, I interviewed the um, some of the people who were instrumental in getting a stop added to... Is it Little Mekong? Down? To, I don't know. Um, but I'm originally, not exactly sure, but yeah. It was going to bypass this, this one community that was historically black and then um, was a lot of immigrants from... Um, East Asia or mm-hmm. South Asia. Um, and the Green Line, the light rail was going to bypass that community. It wasn't going to stop there. It was just going to run through it. And so that is a continuation of the highway legacy. You know, all these highways across the country that destroyed historically black, especially neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, in order to make highways that made it easier for white suburbs. Yeah. And, and they were, these were segregated you could only buy in them if you were white and, and destroying just 
tons of neighborhoods and social capital and economic capital and everything in the process. And so this was kind of continuation of that because you're talking about building a rail line through a neighborhood and then not serving that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So they they engaged in a very granular and specific and local and national campaign to get a stop added on the green line because the people who lived there would use it to get mm-hmm. to work and other places. You know, it takes an enormous amount of energy and it takes commitment to your local community to make that happen. Well, yeah, it takes politicians who actually take the time, local politicians, and that's why I say local uh, elections are vastly more important than, you know, the big elections. Obviously, those have importance, but when it comes to what's going on in your local community, it's important that your local politicians know who the heck is in that community. Because as Mm -hmm. I said, the US is a melting pot of every single culture from every single corner of the world. And you're going to get small areas of that within your city, within your town, within your community. And you need to understand how that plays into the bigger factor of how, you know, laws are put in place, how, as you're saying, you know, how roads are built, how, you know, public transportation is built. I like that you talked about like legacy infrastructure, you know, like a lot of the times we look at what what has happened here in the U.S. as we've built, you know, uh, residential infrastructure, we talk, we can talk about like redlining and basically saying, hey, let's not give loans to these people because they're in a high risk area. Well, if you put people in that area and they can't create wealth through property, I mean, yeah, the, the area is not going to turn out the same way you would if you can get high or low interest loans in another area to majority white people. But it's so interesting how the amount of healthy walks are available in a city, in a town. Minnesota is the land of 10,000 plus lakes. And there are so many good walking trails. But if you didn't really realize that if you lived in the cities, if you lived in Minneapolis, St. Paul, you might not realize the amount of green space that is available if you go just five, 10 minutes outside of your normal you know, way of living. And I think that's important that you kind of get outside mm-hmm. of your your bubble. But then also I thought it was really interesting how, you know, we've been talking about how these, this idea of the car has been built into the American identity. But I like how you talk about, you know, the importance of the walking identity. You talk about refugees walking to asylum, protesters mobilizing, pilgrimage for uh, religious reasons. Like these are all things that are a part of our identity as a people that are built around walking. And it's so important. So if we can build you know, that we can continue to build it out into the future. We can continue to build it into our cities and how we live and how we, you know, go about our everyday. But at that same time, we need to make sure that our politicians are actually interacting with us and we're actually saying these things and we're making sure we're heard regardless of how much capital it takes, regardless of how much energy it takes. And I know, obviously, everyone's not... able to give the same capital and energy, but there needs to be a, a active presence in making sure our local politicians represent the local community. And I think that's sometimes missing here in the U.S. because it's, it's, it's kind of going back to what you're saying, it's somebody else's problem. It's not my problem. You know, I don't want to give up a bit of my comfort so more people can be comfortable. But that should be how we look at the situation. I'm willing to give up a bit of my comfort so more people are comfortable than just myself, my family, my friends. The world's bigger than just that. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's another core identity issue in the U.S. that we have, that, that sort of hyper-individualism, you know, which is another yeah, thing. Mm-hmm. It makes me super pessimistic. And, and it's not when even... I, yeah, like when you look at a car, it's like, I mean, I know they have those graphics where like 40 people can fit in a bus, but then mm-hmm. one person can fit in a car. And it's like, like, it's like, oh, yeah, this is my car. This is me. This is me on the road. This is one person on the road. But really, you're sharing this with tons of people that need to get to where they need to go every single day. Yeah, I heard um, Cory Doctorow. Uh, I don't know if you ever read him. I'm no. kind of a 
big fan. He's, uh, gosh, I don't even know how to describe his writing. Like he writes science fiction books and he also writes anti-capitalist stuff. And um, he's super prolific. Like he writes on Medium and a whole bunch of other places like daily. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> um, but he was on the War on Cars too. And he just had, I think it was him who said this. He had this line, he says, geometry hates cars. And our population around the world is going up and you just can't fit more cars mm -hmm. in that space like you're just you, you, it, it's not this is the real physical world <laughs> it's just, well yeah and it's like it, it's, it's not gonna it's separating us yeah and yeah, you have that quote you know we're spending more time sedentary and alone than ever before it, it's true it's like if we are not taking public transport if we're not interacting with our community members if we're just staying in our car we're driving from point a to point b not interacting with anyone along the way we're going to be more alone than ever before as you say yeah it, it's you know if you're commuting to work and uh i mean this was kind of my life in upstate new york or i should mm -hmm. say my husband like I, I've, I've worked from home for 20 years i'm a copy editor um but he would you know our car was in the garage and he would get in the car, in the garage, drive to work and park inside. And like, I would have to be like, D you know, if you break down, you will want to cope, you know, <laughs> and he <wouldn't> <laughs> sometimes. like it's winter, you know, it's cold just because you're inside doesn't mean you aren't going to interact with the world at some point. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people live like that. And I was thinking, I, I think I had this passage in the book, like if you're doing that and you're like only interaction is with someone at Starbucks, you know, through the drive through how does that affect your mental health? Mm -hmm. And and I'm not saying there's research on that. It's just something I think about a lot. Um, I'm really interested in our embodied experiences. You know, there's more and more research now about how our understanding of the world and uh, comes through our bodies, not through initially through the mind. Uh, and that research, I think, is only it's like scientifically, it's only just starting, even if if people have known it for a long time. But, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people complain about you know, AI and algorithms and social media. And, and I'm with that. I'm, I'm totally with that separation and the problems it creates. Um, and I get hung up though, because they can't seem to see cars as part of that same continuum. Mm. And I do, I see that as one of the first big separations between us, you know, which then as we've been talking about led to infrastructure that separated even more. Um, and I do, I really wonder what that does to our psyches and our sense of community and our sense of interconnectedness and um, interdependence, which is real whether we want it to be or not. You know, yeah. it's. Hello, water cooler listeners. This is Antonia Melchik. Uh, I just wanted to leave a note saying thank you for all your listens and engagement um, and interest in walking and water and all the things I care about. Um, and I hope wherever you are, you are having a good start to your year. Thank you again. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>